This is a Reconstructionist radio production. Please visit ChristendomRestored.com to read this complete article. The title of this audio article is And in One Holy Local Church, The Ghettoization of Protestantism, Part 1, by Bojidar Marinov. Knowing the general level of emotional sensitivity in the modern American church in general, and in the Reformed churches in particular, I need to start this article with a disclaimer. While this article is a commentary on a quote by Jeff Durbin, pastor of Apologia Church, it is not in any way an assessment of the person of Jeff Durbin, and it is not in any way an assessment of his ministry. I know very little about his person, having met him only once, and I know even less about his ministry. I don't follow it, and what I know... I know it from testimonies of other people. I get the general impression that it is a good and legitimate ministry, rather basic stuff, but beneficial to a number of people. I also should say about the specific quote I will be discussing. I don't know what its specific context is. It is a Facebook status, so one can only guess what the context is. My guess, given some developments of the last couple of years, is that the quote was directed against Abolish Human Abortion, AHA. For some of the specific accusations closely match the accusations Jeff and his associates have been leveling against AHA. I am not trying to defend AHA here, although, I must mention, I have never been able to understand this bitter hostility against them, and neither do I understand the accusations against them. I know Jeff Durbin has his own pro-life organization, which he is trying to get off the ground, and I hardly hope and pray he succeeds. But why it has to go with bashing AHA still evades me. As part of this disclaimer, I am indeed partial to AHA for many reasons. One is personal. All of my best friends are abolitionists. I know, I know, this cliché again. Another is missional. They do achieve results, and that at almost zero cost. Another one is ethical. These are courageous folks, and I value courage anywhere I see it. Another one I could call psychological. I prefer to work in a setting of equal in rank co-workers, each of whom knows what he is doing. I get tired in an environment of leaders and followers. I reject the leader-follower model, even in my mission field in Bulgaria, where everyone believes I am a leader because I have founded the mission. AHA is exactly that kind of organization of co-workers, which exactly suits my preferences. So I admit I am partial. But then again, I may be mistaken, and the quote may not be even related to them. Either way, none of the following analysis is personal, and none is addressed at Jeff Durbin's ministry. So, if any reader is quick to take offense, relax, sit down, and read what I really have to say. What is more important is that the quote has certain theological and ecclesiological content. And this content is based on certain presuppositions, as well as certain historical origins, and it also leads to certain practical conclusions. What I argue in this article is that Jeff Durbin has adopted the theology behind his quote by inertia, influenced by the dominant paradigm in the modern Reformed churches, but has not stopped to consider either the presuppositions or the conclusions from it. The quote carries an ecclesiology that has been introduced only recently in the Reformed world. It is based on fallacious ideology, and it has proven destructive to the Reformed churches. 
So my purpose with this article is to invite Jeff Durbin to consider the fallacious origin and the destructive consequences of that ecclesiology and change his commitments and beliefs accordingly. I need to add, I would not have paid attention to what he said if it wasn't brought to my desk by at least a dozen friends who asked me for my opinion. So I guess the quote has gained some popularity, and therefore the dangers of its fallacious theology need to be addressed to prevent future destruction to the church. Jeff's direct words are as follows. Quote, Facebook is filled with Facebook prophets. These are people who aren't a part of the local church, but insist on giving biblical insight and wisdom to those who are actually a part of God's design for believers, corporate worship, communion, under the care of pastors, etc. The Bible can be a dangerous thing in the hands of those who despise authority, aren't involved in the life of the body, and act like renegades. We are wise to avoid the insight of people who refuse to participate in the most fundamental part of the life of a Christian, the local church. God gave us one another for a reason. If we don't love the church, we don't love Jesus. End quote. The sentiment is not something new, although it is relatively new in church history, as we will see, and it is accepted by inertia by almost every single person today who in one way or another attains to some position of authority in the church, or rather, to be more precise, some position of legal power in the church. This sentiment is based on several assumptions made by the modern churchian faith. First, it assumes that the local church is the same thing as the church, hence the concept of being a part of the local church. Second, it assumes that the visible and the invisible church are identical. Third, it assumes that being under formally ordained church government is mandatory, and if one is not, therefore he despises authority. And fourth, and the most arrogant and prideful assumption of all, it assumes that God will only correct his church through formally instituted human bureaucracies within the church, and never through external means. All these, in the final account, rest on one single concept, the so-called local church membership or, as it is known in some Reformed churches today, local church covenant. Remove that concept and the above four assumptions disintegrate. So I will focus my analysis on the concept of mandatory local church membership, its history, its theology, and its consequences, and then we'll also cover the above assumptions and more. So let's get started. Baptist Halfway Confessionalism in his insistence on local church membership, or being part of the local church, on the surface, it looks like Jeff Durbin is in accord with the Baptist tradition and Reformed Baptist confessionalism. Mandatory local church membership is indeed an integral part of the Baptist tradition. And it's not just tradition. It is in fact specifically codified in what we can call the last great Reformed Baptist confession, namely the London Baptist Confession of Faith of 1689. As is well known, the 1689 Baptist Confession was based on the Westminster Confession of 1647 and follows it almost word for word except in the chapter for baptism and also in one other chapter, that of the Church, chapter 25 in the Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 26 in the London Baptist Confession the changes in that chapter are enormously significant, where the WCF speaks in only six articles and sees nothing more than the universal church, 
leaving the issue of local congregations to non-confessional standards, the LBCF has 15 articles, of which 11 specifically outline the form, the membership, the government, and many other specific features of local churches. This is a very clear line of separation between Presbyterian Congregationalist confessionalism on one hand and Baptist confessionalism on the other. Contrary to what many assume, Presbyterianism allows for much more liberty when it comes to ecclesiastical forms, and we will see later that modern Presbyterian denominations differ substantially in their view of church government and membership. As to Baptists, they are confessionally bound to a very specific view of church membership by their own confession. The language of the London Confession is particularly strong in this regard. Quote, In the execution of this power wherewith he is so entrusted, the Lord Jesus calleth out of the world unto himself, through the ministry of his word, by his Spirit, those that are given unto him by his Father, that they may walk before him in all the ways of obedience, which he prescribeth to them in his word. Those thus called, he commandeth to walk together in particular societies or churches, for their mutual edification, and the due performance of that public worship, which he requireth of them in the world. LBCF 26.5 The Confession doesn't offer a single biblical verse which plainly teaches such command. Later Baptist theologians admit that there is no such biblical verse. Even John MacArthur, for all his insistence on church membership, admits that the Bible never speaks of it. Modern Presbyterian theologians who support the concept of mandatory local church membership also admit that there is no verse that explicitly teaches such local church membership. The strongest biblical argument for such membership that was used at the time was Acts 2, 41 and 42. But the text clearly does not speak of such local church covenant. How exactly did they organize a local church of thousands of people within the narrow constraints of Jerusalem? Nowhere else in the Bible is there anything to suggest any form of special covenantal commitment to a local body that is different, separate from, or superadded to the covenant of grace made with the universal church in general in baptism. And this was written by the same group which rejected infant baptism because they did not see any specific command for it in Scripture. It sounds schizophrenic that they would mandate local church membership without an explicit command in Scripture. Indeed, it is schizophrenic, and we will see later why the English Baptists had to go down this road. For now, let's remember that confessions, while important, are not perfectly reliable. They are always a mixture of correct and incorrect interpretations. They often have current pragmatic considerations included in them, and they are often self-contradictory, especially in those parts where they deviate from the Word of God or try to force an interpretation on it. But even if we ignore for now this lack of biblical proofs, another problem appears, namely, that while Baptist churches today may insist on the membership clause of the confession, they avoid abiding by another clause, that of leadership. The question is, how does one define such a local congregation? One can become a member of any congregation, but how does one know which congregation is a real congregation? How do we know that apologia is a real congregation? Obviously, being a member of just anything that claims to be a local congregation won't do. Can one be a member of a Mormon congregation? The LBCF has a definition, and it is a definition based specifically on distinction of classes within the local congregation.
A particular church, gathered and completely organized according to the mind of Christ, consists of officers and members, and the officers appointed by Christ to be chosen and set apart by the church, so called and gathered. For the peculiar administration of ordinances and execution of power or duty, which he entrusts them with, or calls them to, to be continued to the end of the world, are bishops or elders and deacons. LBCF 26.8 The existence of elders in the church makes it legitimate. But how are they chosen? How do we know that certain particular elders are legitimate, and therefore their particular church is legitimate? How do we know that Jeff Durbin is a legitimate elder whose ministry makes the church legitimate? The very next article gives the Baptist answer. The way appointed for Christ for the calling of any person, fitted and gifted by the Holy Spirit, unto the office of bishop or elder in a church, is that he be chosen thereunto by the common suffrage of the church itself, and solemnly set apart by fasting and prayer, with imposition of hands of the eldership of the church, if there be any before constituted therein. Here's the argument. You must join a local church. You will know it is a local church if it has elders. If it doesn't have elders, it can appoint to itself elders, and thus will be a local church. Problem. Before it has elders, is it a church? Why does the confession say otherwise? If it is not, because it doesn't have elders, what are you joining and why? The authors of the London Confession obviously deviated from the Bible by placing on their flocks and members a burden that the Bible doesn't place. But any such deviation from the Bible inevitably creates logical contradictions in thought and practice. Thus, they created a conundrum for future generation of Baptists. The result of that conundrum is that no one really knows whether a group that calls itself a Baptist church is really a Baptist church. Is Apologia a real church? If yes, by what standard? Because it has elders? Are these elders legitimate? How do we know? And how does Jeff know that the people he criticizes are not part of a local church? In any group of two, if one of them is chosen thereunto by the common suffrage of the church itself, such a person is just as much a legitimate elder as is Jeff Durbin, or just as much an illegitimate elder as is Jeff Durbin. What goes for the goose goes for the gander as well. This conundrum is well known to all Baptist ministers who pretend to be confessional. No one knows if any of them are really legitimate church ministers. Is John MacArthur legitimate? Who knows? Is Franklin Graham legitimate? Well, he is. He was chosen thereunto by his father. But is his father legitimate? That is why when it comes to chapter 26, all confessional Baptist ministers become half-confessional. Confessional only when they need to impose the burden of membership on their members, but silent when they must prove their authority is legitimate. In the final account, it is one's media presence and influence that only legitimizes a minister, and this is where the origin of the modern celebrity worship is. The early Baptists understood this conundrum and sought a solution. Originally, the solution was to return to the Romish and Eastern Orthodox excuse of apostolic succession. This is not a joke. Yes, for two and a half centuries, Baptists held to the same view of legitimacy of authority as the Papists, a succession of laying on of hands in Baptist churches from the time of Christ to our own day. I remember a Baptist missionary in Bulgaria in the early 1990s arguing with an Eastern Orthodox priest as to who had a greater claim to apostolic succession. The theory was called Baptist perpetuity. 
and was extremely popular among the rank-and-file Baptists in the U.S. In the second half of the 19th century, a number of Baptist scholars started refuting this myth of Baptist perpetuity. The change was not peaceful, however. In one case, William Whitsett, professor at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, was forced to resign in 1899 after he proved from historical sources that English Baptists did not practice immersion before 1641. Even after the theory of Baptist perpetuity was thoroughly refuted by scholars, the myth continued to live in the popular Baptist imagination. In 1931, James Milton Carroll, a Baptist pastor from Texas, published a small book which remained popular among many Baptists to this day, The Trail of Blood. In it, he made the case for an unbroken succession of Baptist churches and ministers from the Apostles. His list of Baptists in history included even openly heretical groups like the Cathari, the Albigenses, the Polynesians, etc. As strange as it sounds that a Baptist minister would choose to identify with such groups, remember that in our day, John MacArthur has also made such identifications with heretical groups in the past. There is a good reason for it. Relying on apostolic succession seems to solve the conundrum planted in the confession, at the cost of losing one's theological integrity, of course. But historical evidence against this myth of Baptist perpetuity is too strong to be ignored, and in the 20th century, the majority of Baptists have abandoned it. The Baptist Affirmation of Faith of 1966, a modern restatement of the LBCF by Reformed Baptists, completely omits the mention of imposition of hands by already existing eldership. It's all election by the congregation now. Quote, The appointment of elders, including pastors and deacons, for office within the local church, and of preachers and missionaries for the work of evangelism, is the responsibility of the local church under the guidance of the Holy Spirit. The Lord's ordination is recognized both by the experience of the inward conviction and by the approval of the church observing the possession of those gifts and graces required by Scripture for the office concerned. The one so-called should be set apart by the prayer of the whole church, end quote. Baptist Affirmation of Faith, 1966, The Doctrine of the Church, Article 5. This doesn't solve the logical and theological problem, though, of course, we first have the issue of ignoring a basic biblical doctrine, laying on of hands, mentioned among the elementary things in Hebrews 6, 1 and 2. And we also return to the originally stated contradiction. If a local church is validated by having elders, and elders are simply elected by the local church, then there is no way to accuse anyone of being separated from the body. All he has to do is have one more person with him and both elect an elder between them. If this is legitimate, then everyone who believes is by default a member of the body, and therefore all accusations are false accusations and sin. And if it is not legitimate, then the accuser first needs to prove the legitimacy of his own local congregation. Such proof is not logically possible under the confessional standards of modern Reformed Baptists. That is, after centuries of trying to make their confession work through formal legitimacy, they have returned to postulating no legitimacy at all. Either everyone is a legitimate believer, or no Baptist congregation is legitimate at all, and therefore no Baptist is a true believer. This happens when you try to impose non-biblical burdens on God's elect. It is for this reason most so-called confessional Baptists today prefer to not talk about this part of their confession. And, as we saw in the Baptist Affirmation of Faith of 1966, 
they even feel free to modify it and omit the inconvenient parts of it. Baptist confessionalism is only halfway confessional, and the reason, again, is that the authors of the LBCF have gone beyond the Bible and have imposed burdens that the Bible doesn't impose. To rely on that part of the LBCF to mandate local church membership is to lean on a broken reed. Jeff Durbin's accusations can easily turn against himself and make him culpable of the same. Matthew 7.2, Mark 4.24, and Luke 6.38. His only defense in this case would be that the legitimacy of his ministry and church is that they have fruit. But this, as we will see later, can turn against him as well and make him a false accuser. The Anabaptism of Modern Presbyterians I said above that the London Confession differs from the Westminster Confession in its view of mandatory local church membership, but there's more to it. The London Confession differs from all other Reformed Confessions in this regard. No other Reformed Confession includes mandatory local church membership as a religious obligation. In fact, if we need to be even more general, the concept of local church membership has never existed in the church before the 17th century. Yes, the concept of church membership has existed from the very beginning. The concept of local congregation has existed from the very beginning. The theology of there is no salvation outside the church has existed from the very beginning. Hence, the command for Christians to join the church in a covenant, which is the covenant of grace. That joining the church, though, was done through the same means through which man joined the covenant of grace, baptism. And through baptism, man joined the universal church. That is, the same church mentioned in the Apostles' Creed, and then the Nicene Creed, and then in all the other great creeds of Christendom. We believe also in only one universal apostolic and holy church, in one baptism in repentance for the remission and forgiveness of sins and in the resurrection of the dead. The individual believer or confessor in the early centuries of the church automatically became in baptism a member of the universal church and through it of all the local congregations. He needed no additional oath or ceremony or covenant to join a local congregation. Most people would stay within the same congregation, and some may even take voluntary vows of loyalty to each other, such as the way the first monasteries in Ireland and Scotland started. But such vows were never required for a believer to be considered a member or part of the church. A person could travel from place to place, join or attend or cooperate or worship with different Christian communities, or decide to remain for a long time alone in the wilderness or among heathens, and he was still part of the church. Now, we can have legitimate objections to asceticism, but this historical fact is incontrovertible. The early church highly valued ascetics. There is not a single line in the writings of the church fathers where ascetics were rejected because they didn't join a local church. The father of orthodoxy, St. Athanasius himself, wrote a high praise of St. Anthony, for example. For all practical purposes, the early church was much more faithful to the principle of by faith alone, than modern Reformed Baptists. One became a member of the church by faith and creedal confession. Nothing else was needed. There may have been at times different stages of membership, but there has never been any concept of local membership. A member of the church in Jerusalem was also a member of the church in Corinth, and a member of all the churches everywhere. Modern Baptists who claim that they just want to follow the early church 
and yet impose church membership are simply being schizophrenic. The Reformation didn't change anything in this regard. The Reformers worked to Christianize societies, but they never mentioned anything about local church membership. In Geneva of Calvin, the city had a number of church buildings for church members to gather on Sunday, and every day for that matter. But there was never a division of which family goes to which church, or any membership in a specific church. When there was a specific complaint against a person for his views, as against Servetus, that was taken before the whole church. It was not an issue of a local congregation or a session. The Netherlands had city councils of elders, but nothing remotely similar to local churches. In Scotland, the very concept of a national covenant, hence the name Covenanters, ruled out the idea of independent local congregations. In England, the community of the independents was rather fluid, with itinerant preachers and elders being rather men of influence in the community than ecclesiastical hierarchy of local churches, but membership was not assumed as a concept and not practiced by any church. The universality of the church was codified in the confessions as well. As was said above, no other Reformed confession ever laid this burden on believers to necessarily join a local church. This is not to say that being part of the community of the church, universal, and working together with other believers was not encouraged or commanded, but such bonding and working together was left to Christian liberty. Which means, all Reformed confessions acknowledged that there were multiple ways in which a person could be a part of the church and work for and with other brethren, without necessarily binding him to join a local congregation. So does the Westminster Confession, and so does the Savoy Declaration of 1658, a Congregationalist remake of the WCF. As a matter of fact, the most detailed of all, the Second Helvetic Confession, 1566, specifically declared that the true Church extends beyond the visible Church, and therefore there may be members of the Church who are not part of the visible Church. Quote, Nevertheless, by the signs of the true Church mentioned above, we do not so narrowly restrict the church as to teach that all those are outside the church who either do not participate in the sacraments, at least not willingly and through contempt, but rather, being forced by necessity, unwillingly abstain from them or are deprived of them, or in whom faith sometimes fails, though it is not entirely extinguished and does not wholly cease, or in whom imperfections and errors due to weakness are found." End quote. Second Helvetic Confession, 1566, Chapter 17. The Confession continues covering the other end of the spectrum, namely, that not all who are in the visible churches are true members of the church, and finally ends with a warning, which Jeff Durbin should heed before he makes his accusations. Quote, Hence we must be very careful not to judge before the time, nor underta- undertake to exclude, reject, or cut off those whom the Lord does not want to have excluded or rejected and those whom we cannot eliminate without loss to the church. On the other hand, we must be vigilant lest while the pious snore, the wicked gain ground and do harm to the church. Furthermore, we diligently teach that care is to be taken wherein the truth and unity of the church chiefly lies, lest we rashly provoke and foster schisms in the church. Unity consists not in outward rites and ceremonies, but rather in the truth and unity of the Catholic faith. The Catholic faith is not given to us by human laws, but by holy scriptures, of which the Apostles' Creed is a compendium. And, therefore, we read in the ancient writers that there was a manifold diversity of rites, 
that they were free. And no one ever thought that the unity of the church was thereby dissolved. So we teach that the true harmony of the church consists in doctrines and in the true and harmonious preaching of the gospel of Christ and in rites that have been expressly delivered by the Lord. And here we especially urge that saying of the, of the apostle, Let those of us who are perfect have this mind, and if in anything you are otherwise minded, God will reveal that also to you. Nevertheless, let us walk by the same rule according to what we have attained, and let us be of the same mind. End quote. Philippians three, fifteen and following. The background of this confession, which was originally written as the personal confession of Heinrich Bullinger, is important to our understanding whence the concept of mandatory local church membership came from. It obviously didn't come from the early church. It obviously didn't come from the other Reformed traditions. In 1566, when Bollinger wrote the above lines, his main opponents were two groups, coming from two opposite ends of the spectrum. At one end were the Papists. At the other end were the Anabaptists. On the surface, they were opposed to each other. In reality, however, Papists and Anabaptists have similar views on the question of membership, and it was that a true Christian must be a part of the visible church. And while for the Papists the visible church was Roman, priestocratic bureaucracy, through the Anabaptists it was their local brotherhoods. Only membership in the local brotherhood made a person a true Anabaptist. Now I know that my Reformed Baptist brethren would respond that the real origin of modern Baptists is with the English separatists. Fair enough. I don't disagree with this when it comes to theology. But when it comes to ecclesiology, and especially to the question of local church membership, modern Baptists and even modern Reformed Baptists are closer to the Anabaptists and to other cultic sects. The first historical examples of making a covenant with a local community were indeed the Anabaptists in Germany and Switzerland. Membership in the community was the central characteristic, and the life of an Anabaptist had to revolve almost entirely around the local congregation. As early as 1527, the Hutterites, an early Anabaptist sect in Moravia, had an order of the community, how a Christian should live, Ordung der Geim, we ein Christ leben soll, which tied the life of every believer to his local group. The Ordnung required that they met four or five times a week and commit to the local congregation their lives and possessions for the needs of the congregation. The commitment was so severe that a special clause in the Ordnung required secrecy in relation to outsiders. Quote, what is officially judged among the brothers and sisters in the brotherhood shall not be made public before the world. The kind-hearted and interested but not yet converted or committed person shall be taught before he comes to the brothers in the brotherhood. When he has learned and has an earnest desire for it, and if he agrees to the essence of the gospel, he shall be received by the Christian brotherhood as a brother or a sister, that is, as a fellow member of Christ. But this shall not be made public before the world to spare the conscience and for the sake of the purpose." End quote. Mennonites practiced local church membership long before the English Baptists, and to this day, different modern Anabaptist groups do not acknowledge anyone to be one of them unless he has some sort of membership in a local congregation. The Membership Guidelines 2001 of the Mennonite Church USA specifically acknowledge the right of the local congregation to strictly control local membership. Quote, Congregations have the authority to determine the criteria and the responsibility to implement the process for membership of persons joining their congregation 
as well as leaving. They do so in consultation with their area conference and in consideration of expectations for membership in Mennonite Church USA. Membership Guidelines 11.2 The rules for local membership are even stricter when we go into the realm of the cults. The Mormon Church has their strict rules for local church membership, as well as other quasi-Christian sects. For the sake of space, I will refrain from delving deeper into their ecclesiology. One thing is perfectly clear. The more we move in the direction of traditional, confessional, orthodox, creedal Christianity, the more the universal nature of the church is emphasized, as in the creeds, and the lower the standards for membership and participation in it. At the general level, baptism and public profession of faith are sufficient to make one a member of the church, and by default, a member of any and every professing creedal orthodox congregation anywhere. There is no need for additional commitment to local bodies. Such commitment is not sinful, but it is superfluous, and making it a requirement is anti-biblical and anti-confessional. On the other hand, the more we move in the direction of heterodoxy, heresies, and cults, the more the requirement for local church membership becomes mandatory, and the higher the standards for being a member of the church. In this, our Baptist brethren are straddling the fence. Their theology is orthodox, but their ecclesiology rather matches that of the Anabaptist sects and the cults. However, despite their ecclesiology being unbiblical, non-orthodox, self-contradictory, originating from the Anabaptist sects and peculiar to all the pseudo-Christian cults, our Baptist brethren can feel triumphant and claim victory in one thing. Today, most Reformed denominations and groups in the U.S. have adopted the same Anabaptist ecclesiology and the same non-confessional standard of mandatory local church membership. This Anabaptist ecclesiology is embedded in all the books of church order of all the Presbyterian denominations in the U.S., contrary to their professed subscriptionism to the Westminster Confession and contrary to the historical theology of Presbyterianism. The most schizophrenic of all, of course, is the Confederation of Reformed Evangelicals, CRE, or also known under its older acronym, CREC, where an official theology of high churchism and Protestant Catholicity, also known as Federal Vision Theology, is combined with extreme Anabaptist practices of mandatory local church membership and almost unlimited power for the local sessions over membership and over their flocks. There are elaborate rituals of local church covenant and admission into the local body. At the other end of the pipe, leaving a local church or transferring to another local church is always a huge issue of authority and power play, and such transfer of membership always involves special permission by the elders. There are dozens of cases within the Presbyterian denominations in the U.S. where members of good standing have been excommunicated for daring move to another church even within the same denomination without permission from the local session. Presbyterian churches have all basically adopted the mafia principle. Quote, no one leaves us in good standing. End quote. Or to stick to a theological interpretation, as far as ecclesiology is concerned, modern Presbyterians are nothing more than Anabaptists. In none of the cases I have studied do modern Presbyterian leaders try to explain this departure from their own confessional standards. In the few cases I have tried to engage some on this issue, their excuses have been two. First, that without local church membership there will be no church discipline. And second, that mandatory local church membership falls under the Good and Necessary Consequence Clause in Chapter 1, Article 6 
of the WUCF. Of the former, I will talk below, when we get to the issue of church government and discipline. Of the latter, the good and necessary consequence clause has become to modern Presbyterian churchmen what the general welfare of the U.S. Constitution has become to modern liberals, an excuse to force onto the confession a number of non-confessional burdens. But to make this point clear, and to see whether mandatory local church membership is really a good and necessary consequence, the best course would be to check its validity against historical Presbyterian theology. If it is really a good and necessary consequence, then early Presbyterian theologians would have taught it. Presbyterian theology rejects mandatory membership. A study of historic Presbyterian theology, however, reveals that not only have Presbyterian theologians never taught such a thing, but they vehemently opposed the concept of mandatory local church membership whenever they encountered it. And in fact, as we will see, some even opposed mandatory church membership, not just local, as false worship. Calvin, of course, spoke very strongly in favor of organized church communities, but not so strongly as to require that everyone be a member of one, no matter what its purity was. In his anti-Nicodemite writings, he made it very clear that in the case where the churches in an area were all impure, the best course for a true Christian was to leave them and worship in private. Yes, worship in private. Here are Calvin's words. Quote, Someone will therefore ask me what counsel I would like to give to a believer who thus dwells in some Egypt or Babylon where he may not worship God purely, but is forced by the common practice to accommodate himself to bad things. The first advice would be to leave if he could. If someone has no way to depart, I would counsel him to consider whether it would be possible for him to abstain from all idolatry in order to preserve himself pure and spotless toward God in both body and soul. Then let him worship God in private, praying him to restore his poor church to its right estate. Dot, 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 end quote. The early Presbyterian experience in Scotland is the second half of the 16th and the first half of the 17th centuries was rather chaotic. This was a time when the concept of the National Covenant, hence the name Covenanters, was opposed to the prelacy. In their strives against the prelacy, Covenanters sometimes took self-contradictory positions on different issues of ecclesiology. Some defended church hierarchy, others rejected it. Most operated, prophesied and taught, outside the visible institutional church. Some even rejected the necessity and the validity of ordination, even by their own fellow Covenanter elders, and yet were held in great esteem, and some even moderated general assemblies, yes, while unordained. While a more detailed study of the Covenanters' ecclesiology in those early days of their work and doctrine should be a topic for another article, we can summarize their views as a healthy balance between serving the visible church and acknowledging the service of the invisible church. Serving the visible church was mandatory. The forms were left to Christian liberty. Joining a local congregation was highly desirable but not mandatory. Prophets should be under the discipline of the church, but when the visible church rejected them, like today's cessationist churches would do, they were free to operate outside her and bring judgment on her. The majority of the early, early Scottish divines worked for certain periods of their lives outside any established church or congregation. They could do that because, in their view, the church was not the local churches but the universal body. And it was this view of the church that was encoded in the Westminster Confession. Not the local churches, but the universal church. 
Presbyterians first encountered the concept of mandatory local church membership in the 1630s, when Congregationalist preachers tried to establish a foothold in Scotland, and to respond to it fell not to some minor Presbyterian preacher, but to the big Bertha of Covenanter theology, Samuel Rutherford. During the 1630s, Rutherford had been banished and cut off from the church for his Presbyterian convictions. His only connection to the visible church at the time was his writing desk. If anyone fits the description of a prophet outside the visible church, or a writing desk prophet, Facebook prophet, it would be Samuel Rutherford before 1638. He could have remained in the visible church during that time and obeyed the lawful authorities, but he refused. He could have organized his own local congregation, but he didn't. When Presbyterianism was reestablished in 1638, Rutherford returned to his ministry and took upon himself to defend the ecclesiology of the Covenanters. He produced several books within the next decade, specifically on ecclesiology. His greatest contributions were The Due Rights of Presbyteries, 1644, and The Divine Right of Church Government and Excommunication, 1646. It is in The Due Rights of Presbyteries where he included his response against the localist ecclesiology of the Congregationalists. The Congregationalist authors he took on had exactly the same views as modern Presbyterians and Baptists, that a person is not a real believer unless he is a member of a local church, and unless he goes through what they called a church covenant, that is, a specific commitment to a local body in addition to the general membership in the church through baptism. Rutherford strongly rejected the concept. He devoted 60-plus pages, pages 76 through 138, in a book of 450 pages total to oppose this error. His arguments are at times a bit windy and hard to follow for a modern reader. He was, after all, trained in scholasticism, but we can mention his main points and conclusions. First, Rutherford starts from the classical Calvinist affirmation of the superiority of the invisible church over the visible church, which means not all who are outside the visible church are necessarily unbelievers. This would make himself and most of his predecessors and co-workers unbelievers for at least some periods of their lives if it was true. While joining a church is desirable, it is not mandatory, and has nothing to do with a covenantal status of a man before God. In his own words, quoting also from Augustine, quote, There is a necessity of joining ourselves to a visible church, but it is not necessitas medi, but necessitas prosepiti. It is not such a necessity as all are damned who are not within some visible church, for Augustine is approved in this, quote, There be many wolves within the church and many sheep without, end quote. But if God offer opportunity, all are obliged by God, his commandment of confessing Christ before men, to join themselves to the true visible church, end quote. Rutherford himself is rather ambiguous as to when and how this opportunity arises. He advises wisdom in leaving a church for being in an unlawful assembly or not fulfilling its obligations of a church, but in the final account leaves it to Christian liberty without any specific word of judgment. Second, the manner of entering membership in the church universal is through baptism and a profession of faith. Nothing else is needed, no other commitments whatsoever. Commitment or covenant to a local church is allowed, not sinful, but requiring such covenant is unlawful. Rutherford's words. Quote, 1. Distinct. There is a covenant of free grace betwixt God and sinners, founded upon the surety Christ Jesus laid hold on, us, on by us, when we believe in Christ 
but a church covenant differenced from this is in question, and sub judis list est. 2. Distinct. There is a covenant of baptism made by all, and a covenant virtual and implicit renewed when we are to receive the Lord's Supper, but an explicit positive professed church covenant by oath in churching a person or a society to a state church is now questioned. 3. Distinct. An explicit vocal covenant whereby we bind ourselves to the first three articles in a tactful way, by entering in a new relation to such a pastor and to such a flock we deny not, as if the thing were unlawful, for we may swear to perform God's commandments, observing all things requisite in a lawful oath. 2. But that such a covenant is required by divine institution as the essential form of a church and church membership, as though without this none were entered members of the visible churches of the apostles, nor can now be entered in church state, nor can have right unto the seals of the covenant we utterly deny. He continues by showing that once a person has received baptism, he was by default a member of any congregation anywhere. There was no need for an additional covenant. If there was such a need, this would nullify the covenant in baptism. Thus, third, he sees the requirement for local church covenant as an additional burden imposed on the believer's conscience, and therefore calls it will-worship, or, in our modern language, false worship. That is, any Presbyterian church today which practices such a requirement is in a direct violation of the regulative principle of worship. Rutherford's words, quote, All will worship, laying a band on the conscience, where God hath laid none, is damnable. But to tie the oath of God to one particular duty rather than another, so as you cannot, without such an oath, enter into such a state, nor have title and right to the seals of grace in God's ordinances, is will-worship, and that by virtue of a divine law and is a binding of the conscience where God hath not bound it. End quote. And fourth, while the arguments came from Congregationalist authors, Rutherford correctly identified the real origin of these arguments, the views of the Armenians and the Socinians, that is, the unorthodox sects. There is nothing reformed in mandatory local church membership. Was Rutherford alone in these views? Hardly. As I pointed out above, none of the Reformed confessions required external membership in any particular body, and at least one emphasized the fact that believers not associated with any particular body are still members of the Church. A multitude of other Protestant divines could be cited here, but this would make this article too long and unreadable. Thus, I will simply fast forward to the second half of the 19th century to another big gun of Presbyterian theology, Charles Hodge. Now, Charles Hodge has never lived through the trials and tribulations of Samuel Rutherford. He has never had to operate outside the visible church. He has never had to be a writing-desk prophet with no congregation. He was the model Presbyterian theologian. He surely would have been much less willing to acknowledge the existence of Christians without a visible body, and he would be much stricter in the requirement of church membership, right? Wrong. In describing the church in his Systematic Theology, Volume 1, pages 134-139, through 139, he goes even farther than Samuel Rutherford, not only openly declaring that the church includes those who are not connected to any visible body, but also that this is the very defining characteristic of Protestant theology, the invisible church over the visible church. He makes sure he repeats the same concept several times. Obviously, he considered it very important. Here are Harge's own words when he comes to describe the Protestant doctrine of the church. Quote, 1. That the church is such or in its essential nature, is not 
an external organization, end quote. What follows from it is that membership is an external organization is not necessary. Quote, Two, all true believers in whom the Spirit of God dwells are members of that church which is the body of Christ, no matter with what ecclesiastical organization they may be connected, and even although they have no such connection. End quote. In case someone didn't get the message, quote, three, therefore, that the attributes, prerogatives, and promises of the church do not belong to any external society as such, but to the true people of God collectively considered. End quote. And what does this mean in practice when membership in the church is concerned? Quote, four, that the condition of membership in the true church is not union with any organized society, but faith in Jesus Christ. End quote. He is not done yet. Consider the following paragraph. Emphasis mine. Quote, Protestants do not deny that there is a visible church Catholic on earth, consisting of all those who profess the true religion, together with their children. But they are not all included in any one external society. They also admit that it is the duty of Christians to unite for the purpose of worship and mutual watch and care. They admit that to such associations and societies certain prerogatives and promises belong, that they have or ought to have the officers whose qualifications and duties are prescribed in the scriptures, that there always have been, and probably always will be, such Christian organizations or visible churches. But they deny that any one of these societies or all of them collectively, constitute the church for which Christ died, in which he dwells by his Spirit, to which he has promised perpetuity, catholicity, unity, and divide guidance into the knowledge of the truth. End quote. Notice how Charles Hodge is not even sure if such organized visible societies will always exist. He uses the word probably. There always have been, and probably always will be, such visible churches. Why probably? There's a deeper eschatology behind it, and we will talk about it later. He continues in the same vein for several pages, supporting his case from the Reformed Confessions and from Reformed theologians, including Turretin, and he comes to the conclusion about church membership. Quote, the doctrine that a man becomes a child of God and an heir of eternal life by membership in any external society overturns the very foundations of the gospel and introduces a new method of salvation. End quote. That is, for Charles Hodge, Jeff Durbin's claim that the local church is, quote, the most fundamental part of the life of a Christian, end quote, and the modern Presbyterian requirement of joining a local church are nothing more than plain Pelagian heresy. Charles Hodge argues against the Romish church in these pages, but given that the same applied to the Anabaptists, he argued against all the heresies of salvation through works. Between John Calvin, Samuel Rutherford, and Charles Hodge, it should be very clear to any true Presbyterian deserving of the name which way Presbyterian theology goes. To this we can add A. A. Hodge and his statement that, quote, A church has no right to make a condition of membership anything that Christ has not made a condition of salvation, end quote. To this we can add a number of other Presbyterian theologians who made the difference between the invisible and the visible church a mark of Reformed theology, and therefore rejected the idea of mandatory connection to a visible body. Mandatory membership in the local church or membership in any church whatsoever, is not a biblical requirement, and is a heretical notion. Membership in a visible body was prescribed but not mandatory. If anything, it was an obligation of the church ministers to provide an opportunity by setting up churches. It was not the obligation of the individual member to actively seek out a church to join. To close the circle of the true Presbyterian position, we only need to follow the practice of Presbyterian churches in the 19th century. In the same period, 
when Charles Hodge taught and wrote his systematic theology. We have evidence of those Presbyterian practices in the history of the Presbyterian Church in America by William Melanchthon Glasgow, written in 1888. It's a rather long and detailed document, close to 800 pages, but what we are interested in is whether the Presbyterian Church required membership in a visible body. There are multiple examples in the book that there was no such requirement, and a person was considered a member of the church even without it being a member of a local body. Two quotes from the book will suffice for the sake of brevity. Quote, A few members have lived in the city of Chicago and other localities, but no societies were ever organized. Wapaka, this city and vicinity, were cultivated as a mission station by the Reverend James L. Pinkerton in 1876, but no congregation was organized as there were but a few families of covenanters in that locality, end quote. The history contains mo- many more such examples, but the main point is obvious, even from these two. One could be a covenanter and a member of the church even without a local congregation. Reading more of the book, it becomes clear that the ministers of the Reformed Presbyterian Church considered it their obligation to create congregations, but there was no mandatory joining those congregations. In fact, according to the very founding documents of the Kirk of Scotland, it was much better to not have a church at all than to have a church led by defective ministers. Quote, we are not ignorant that the rarity of godly and learned men shall seem to some a just reason why that so straight and sharp examination should not be taken universally. For so it shall appear that the most part of Kirks shall have no minister at all. But let these men understand that the lack of able men shall not excuse us before God if, by our consent, unable men be placed over the flock of Christ Jesus, as also that, among the Gentiles, godly, learned men were also rare as they are now amongst us, when the Apostle gave the same rule to try and examine ministers which we now follow. And last, let them understand that it is alike to have no minister at all, and to have an idol in the place of a true minister. Yea, and in some cases it is worse. For those that are utterly destitute of ministers will be diligent to search for them, but those that have a vain shadow do commonly, without further care, content content themselves with the same. And so they remain continually deceived, thinking that they have a minister, when in very deed they have none. Obviously, then, for Presbyterians in the past, being a member of a local church was not a priority. The priority was to have able men as ministers. In case there was no such men, it was better to not have a local church, and therefore no local church membership. A few modern Presbyterians have tried to tell me that their churches had membership roles that went back 150 years, trying to prove that mandatory membership existed back then. The truth is, the the membership roles only prove that people joined those churches. They don't prove that such joining was mandatory as a condition for membership. To the contrary, Glasgow's history clearly proves that the Presbyterian Church in the 19th century agreed with Samuel Rutherford and Charles Hodge. That faith and public confession were the only necessary condition for being a member of the Church. Anything else was false worship and heresy. State-imposed ghettoization Mandatory local church membership has never been part of the doctrine and the practices of the early Church. It was never part of the Reformed doctrines, It was specifically rejected by Reformed confessions and Reformed theologians. It came originally from the Anabaptist and other non-Orthodox sects. So the question is, why did Reformed Baptists decide to differ from all the other Reformed groups? 
Why did they have to go against the testimony of the Reformed faith and impose on their followers an unbiblical burden? And why did they have to create a logical conundrum? Some would say, well, this is just Baptist theology and tradition. It separates us from everyone else. Not really. This Baptist theology and tradition appeared in 1689. The Confession of 1689 was a second London Baptist Confession. There was a first London Baptist Confession, now largely ignored by the majority of Baptists. It was completed and adopted in 1644, two years before the Westminster Confession was completed and adopted. In theology, it didn't differ from the Second London Confession. It was Calvinist and Puritan to the core. In ecclesiology, however, it had some significant differences. First, it mentioned no mandatory local church membership in any form. Local churches were mentioned, but not requirement for joining them. The focus was on the universal church. Second, and more important, a church was not defined by having a government. That is, a a church government was not necessary for the being of the church, only for its well-being. Here are the relevant lines in the Confession. Article 35. And all his servants are called thither to present their bodies and souls, and to bring their gifts God has given them, so being come. They are here by himself bestowed in their several order, peculiar place, due use, being fitly compact and knit together, according to the effectual working of every part, to the edification of itself in love. Article 36. That being thus joined, every church has power given them from Christ for their better well-being, to choose to themselves fitting persons into the office of pastors, teachers, elders, deacons, being qualified according to the word, as those which Christ has appointed in his testament for the feeding, governing, serving, and building up of his church, and that none other have to power to impose them, either these or any other. Notice how the local church is expected to gather naturally, not by mandatory membership, and not needing any leadership for its existence, only when it is gathered for its well-being. It has the power to choose leaders, but it is not defined by having elders. Compare this to the 1689 Confession, where the church itself is defined by a separation of classes between ministers and members. Third, these church leaders, amazingly enough, are stripped of the monopoly of administering baptism opposite to the 1689 Confession, where the ministers are entrusted the peculiar administration of ordinances. The 1644 Confession says that this administration is not limited to officers. Article 41. The persons designed by Christ to dispense this ordinance, the scriptures hold forth to a preaching disciple. It being nowhere tied to a particular church, officer, or person extraordinarily sent, the commission enjoining the administration, being given to them under no other consideration but as considered disciples. Obviously, then, 1689 Baptists differed in their view of the church not only from Presbyterians and Puritans and other Reformed. They also differed from the 1644 Baptists. Something changed between 1644 and 1689 to make Baptists switch from Reformed to Anabaptist ecclesiology. That something wasn't Reformed theology. As we saw, Reformed theology remained the same for another two centuries at least. What changed it was a legislative shift in government policies. It was a 501c3 law, or a law that was similar to the modern 501c3 regulations in the U.S. The return of Charles II to England in 1660 saw not only the restoration of the monarchy in England, but also the re-establishment of the Church of England in a series of laws known as the Clarendon Code. 
the most important part of it being the Act of Uniformity of 1662. This Act of Uniformity regulated the relations between the government and the religious establishment, but it did it in a principally new way, different from everything so far. Prior to 1662, monarchs either tolerated different religious sects without any particular formal laws at whim or forced a form of religion on them. The Act of 1662 didn't force uniformity. It only precluded nonconformists from taking government positions, being teachers in schools, and earning degrees at royal universities and colleges. They were also banned from having public meetings, although private meetings were not banned. For this reason, it was also called the Nonconformist Disabilities Act. The uniformity in the Act was defensive, not offensive. Baptist churches could exist now. It's just their members suffered some civil disabilities. After the Glorious Revolution in 1688, William and Mary replaced the Act of Uniformity with a new Act, the Act of Toleration of 1688. That Act is very important to our study here. The Act of Toleration gave all dissenting Protestants, nonconformists, the right to free public worship, provided they took the oath of loyalty to the new sovereigns, King William and Queen Mary. The disabilities of the previous act were not repealed. Nonconformists could still not take government positions, nor be teachers, nor go to royal colleges. These disabilities would remain for another two centuries. Charles Spurgeon labored under those disabilities, and his support for the liberals was based on their platform of repealing those disabilities. But in all other respects, they were left alone, provided they took the oath of loyalty. But there were Protestant dissenters who didn't want to take that oath either, and Baptists were among them. The Act had provided for these two. It required for every such minister who was a Protestant dissenter, at least two witnesses and six members of his congregation, that he is indeed a Protestant dissenter, and not, for example, Roman Catholic or non-Trinitarian. Here's the relevant text of the Act. Quote, Article 14. Provided always, and be it enacted by the authority aforesaid, that in case any person shall refuse to take the said oaths when tendered to them, which every justice of the peace is hereby empowered to do, such person shall not be admitted to make and subscribe the two declarations aforesaid, though required thereunto, either before any justice of the peace, or at the general or quarter sessions, before or after any conviction of popish recusancy, as aforesaid, unless such person can, within thirty-one days, after such tender of the declarations to him, produce two sufficient Protestant witnesses to testify upon oath that they believe him to be a Protestant dissenter, or a certificate under the hands of four Protestants who are conformable to the Church of England, or have taken the oaths and subscribed the declaration above mentioned, and shall also produce a certificate under the hands and seals of six or more sufficient men of the congregation to which he belongs, owing him for one of them. End quote. That is, the Act granted toleration only where there was social visibility. This is a very important point in any study of the relations between the civil government and the Church. Rulers are afraid of the doctrine of the invisible Church and of its practical applications. Before 1688, most rulers in history had tried to suppress the individual Church through persecutions and forced uniformity. 
the Toleration Act of 1688, was the first formal law passed by a European sovereign which tried to suppress the invisible church through granting toleration for visibility, or, as we call it today in our modern language, incorporation, that is, in a visible body. The act did something else as well. It fragmented the Christian community through incorporation. The established Church of England was treated as a corporation without any special procedures for individual ministers. That is, any local Anglican vicar was officially acknowledged by the virtue of being part of the Church of England, whether he had any members of his congregation or not. The Act of Toleration required incorporation for every individual nonconformist minister, or the testimony of conformists, Protestants, and six or more members of his congregation. The churches now were allowed to exist only if, for government purposes, they registered separately of each other and claimed each member separately for a specific individual church. The government would tolerate any free churches only as separate entities, and to register as separate entities, membership had to be membership in separate entities, local churches. Ordination between churches didn't count. The testimony of ministers from other Baptist churches didn't count. Denominations didn't count. Toleration was only granted where there was local church membership. The principle was the same as behind today's 501c3 regulations. The only difference was that instead of tax exemption, the ministers got toleration. For all practical purposes, the act of toleration was a 501c3 regulation. Or, for all practical purposes, the 501c3 regulation today is an act of toleration. Baptist churches has had been seeking such visibility and toleration under the restoration of Charles II, and they finally got it in 1688 in the Glorious Revolution. So now that they've had it, they were prepared to have a confession which encoded this fragmented visibility. No more universal church, and no more theology of the invisible church. From now on, being a Baptist would mean participating visibly in the process of legitimizing your local Baptist community. If you didn't, your pastor was in trouble with the authorities. This was an incentive which warranted including unbiblical burdens in the confession. And this was the reason why the Baptists, in 1689, had to deviate so much in their ecclesiology from all the other groups, and from the Baptists in 1644. While a study of the influence of 501c3 on modern ecclesiology doesn't fall into the topic of this article, it would still be relevant here to point out that the dominance of this Anabaptist ecclesiology in modern America coincided with the new Tolerance Act of 501c3. Just like in 1689, today, it pays for the individual churches to forsake the Reformation doctrine of the invisible church and to go full visible, mandating local church membership. The same practice of offering perks for visibility, incorporation, registration, etc., have been used by governments throughout history every time they had to deal with movements under the government's radar. Gun registration in the U.S. is one example of this practice. Government aid to homeschooling families is another. In Eastern Europe in the 1980s, the communist government started offering registration and legalizing of different dissident movements with the purpose of drawing them in open. In the 1970s and the 1980s, even Protestant churches were tolerated under communism if they were incorporated, visible, while a simple prayer meeting behind locked doors could easily land the participants in prison. In all these cases, taking the government's bait has led to compromise and even betrayal of the ideology and the purpose of the movement. The Toleration Act of 1689 
was such a bait, and Reformed Baptists fell for it, hook, line, and sinker. For the next 200 years, they continued to exist in England, but their cultural influence waned. This influence had a short culmination in the ministry of Charles Spurgeon, who actually had to compromise on the question of membership in order to attract new attendees. After the removal of the disabilities, English Baptists never again played a notable part in the history of England. The Eschatology of Self-Encapsulation It is still true, though, that while the Reformed Baptists and a few more nonconformist groups surrendered and abandoned the Reformed doctrine of the importance of the invisible church, other Reformed groups did not. Presbyterians and others continued registering membership automatically upon baptism, with no requirement of additional commitment to a local body. As I pointed above, from William Glasgow's History of the Reformed Presbyterian Church, Presbyterian ministers considered as members, people who had no local congregation to be members of, they were obviously not so concerned about submission to elders and church discipline. The concept of mandatory local church membership remained a characteristic only of the Baptist churches. While the political pressure for visibility of the local congregations broke the Baptists, it didn't break the others. This means that some other factor was at work as well. The other factor was eschatology, specifically pessimistic eschatology. In his major treatise on the rise and fall of civilizations, the British historian Arnold Toynbee made an interesting observation about civilizations, that while a civilization has faith in the future and is expanding, it keeps open borders and builds its roads in a radial shape, from the center to the borders. Once it loses its optimism, it starts to encapsulate and focuses on building walls along the borders. The Roman Empire is a good example, for in its years of expansion and optimism, it built very few defensive facilities, only walls of a few strategic cities. Once it reached what was considered the farthest possible limit of expansion, and once pessimism became the ruling sentiment about the future, the empire poured huge amounts of money into building gigantic defensive structures. Two still exist today in Britain. There are remains of around 10 walls and dikes in Romania only, of lengths between 30 and 100 miles, etc. Once a civilization or culture turned to fear or the future, it begins to encapsulate itself, even if previously it had no identifiable borders at all. The same principle can be seen at work in the history of the United States. It is not a simple coincidence that the first anti-immigration laws were passed only after dispensationalism became the dominant eschatology in the American churches. Before 1921, Americans may have complained about this or that immigrant group, but the common perception was that the nation didn't need closed borders. Obviously, an optimistic culture sees expansion as an inevitable destiny and a mandate, so borders are seen as impediment. That's why the Declaration of Independence listed closed borders as one of the grievances against the king. That's why the U.S. Constitution did not allow the federal government to control immigration. And that's why, for four generations, the U.S. had open borders for individuals who wanted to travel or to immigrate to it. Optimism needs no border control. It was only when a pessimistic eschatology was accepted in the churches and a pessimistic ideology followed suit in the society and in politics that a call for closed borders could be accepted as, le as legitimate and supported by the population. In one of his lectures, R.J. Rushduni also mentions the willingness of the Puritans and the Pilgrims in the colonies in New England to open their communities for outsiders, 
even criminals. Their optimism and faith in the power of redemption to change people and societies gave them assurance that no danger of outsiders can be greater than the benefits that would flow from accepting and converting the newcomers. Reformed Netherlands in the 16th and 17th century had the same optimism and the same open borders for refugees from war-torn Germany, France, and Spain. In fact, during the 17th century, more than one-third of the population of the Netherlands was foreign-born. The Church followed the same policy of openness throughout the centuries. When we today, in our populated world, have a baptism service for 30 people, we think it is, it is a big event. Baptisms for hundreds and even thousands of people were a normal thing in the age of early missions in Europe. From our modern perspective, this sounds strange. How do they know every person? And how do they know he was a real convert? The truth is, they didn't. They didn't need to know. From the perspective of those early missionaries, people were not baptized into a local church. Such a concept would mean absolutely nothing to the early church. These people were baptized into Jesus Christ, and thus into His universal church. And through the universal church, they were baptized into Christendom, that is, a comprehensive civilization that included everyone, including the false converts and even the unbelievers. Yes, many of these baptized people would know nothing of their new faith, and not all of them would be attending church. But the optimism of the early church told those early missionaries that no matter what happened after baptism, things were going to get better, and the society and the individuals in it would be growing in the faith, with or without churches or teachers. Yes, they worked to establish centers of learning in churches, but the church was greater than the local congregations and included all those who were baptized, and the kingdom was, e was even greater than the church. So the churches kept their doors opened and acknowledged as members of the church all those who believed and professed Christ. For many centuries, a significant share of all Christians in the world were not under the direct care of ecclesiastical ministers. A growing civilization needs no encapsulation. It was only the cults who kept their ranks closed and demanded strict rules for church membership and an exorbitant focus on submission to human authorities. The reason, again, was eschatological. Unlike the historic church, cults and heresies never understood themselves to be bearers of a civilization the way the church understood itself to be the bearer of Christendom. A cult is always busy separating itself from the world. It's, it always views that separation from the world as so radical as to make it its defining characteristic. Cults and heresies, by denying one or another tenet of Trinitarianism, are by default dualistic. And a dualistic religion is by default pessimistic about history and the world, because it doesn't have presuppositional foundation to apply spiritual principles to the material world. Cults and heresies do not see the world as conquerable, and therefore they do not expect to conquer it. They expect to remain small ghettos of the true faith against a world of growing darkness. Thus, building walls around those ghettos is mandatory. They need to clearly separate the insiders from the outsiders through a specific covenant of belonging, not just to a faith, but also to a specific visible body. In his book, The Moral Imagination, The Art and Soul of Building Peace, the Mennonite scholar John Paul Lederach offers an extensive praise of pessimism as an attitude to life. In it, he relates pessimism to localism and insulation, to what he calls proxemics, that is, quote, the study of the actual physical space that people view as necessary 
to set between themselves and others in order to feel comfortable, end quote. Pessimism makes people build walls around their communities and insulate themselves in small localities because the only positive change they can possibly perceive is local, limited to what their direct sense can perceive. In Lederach's words, to, quote, what can be felt and touched, emphasis in the original, end quote. Pessimism thus makes people lose their global perspective, for any global perspective is by default impossible to influence. Only local processes and changes can be influenced, and therefore only local processes and changes are worth paying attention to. And following from it, only people who make the local community the focus of their work and service are true public servants. A pessimist doesn't perceive any global processes. He can't even allow for their existence. When confronted with the reality of the universal church and the confessions, he ignores the confessions, even while he claims he subscribes to them, and asks his pessimistic question, When is the last time you saw the universal church? When shown the work and the service of men to the universal church, he wants to see what they have done for some obscure small community, even if that obscure small community has never left any legacy of service to the universal church. When given the facts about the historical growth of Christianity, his reply is always local. Where can you see? with your own eyes, such growth. A pessimist is always local, and therefore a pessimist always builds walls of separation between his community and the world. He doesn't expect his community to conquer the world, so the battle is how to prevent the world from conquering his community, how to separate between the faithful and the outsiders. This is where local church membership comes in as a convenient legal and psychological technique of building walls of separation against the world. All the faithful must come within these walls and remain there. Anyone who leaves the enclosure is leaving the faith. The Bible, to the contrary, teaches optimism in history, and with its optimism it teaches a universal view which breaks all walls and encourages the faithful to break out of the mold and go out into the world. This teaching is everywhere in Scripture. In fact, one of the Old Testament promises about the New Covenant is that Jerusalem will be inhabited without walls because of the multitude of men and cattle within it. Zechariah 2.4 The protection will be left to God, not to human devices, be they walls or memberships. In the Bible, when the kingdom of God operates, veils are torn, gates are broken and opened, and worship is freed from geographical and institutional constraints. John 4.21 Global events being subject to God, the biblical optimist sees no reason to separate himself from them. The universal church is more real to him than the supposed local community, and wherever he joins a local group, it is only in the context of the greater purpose and work of the universal church. He works locally, but he is not limited to local membership. The very concept of local church membership means nothing to him. The local church is not an independent covenantal agent to start with. It can't make separate covenants for any kind of membership. Given that the biblical optimist expects victory in every area of life, he doesn't limit nor focus his gifts on one single area, local ecclesiastics. Such focus is a waste of resources to him, because the kingdom is much larger than the church, and certainly much larger than a local group which may or may not exist within a few years. His operational motto is, Local churches come and go, the kingdom remains forever, or To put it in the words of the Westminster Confession, the purest churches under heaven are subject both to mixture and error, and some have so degenerated as to become no churches of Christ, but synagogues of Satan. Nevertheless, 
there shall be always a church on earth to worship God according to His will. WCF 25.5 Thus, the biblical optimist knows, reasonably deducted from his Bible and from the confessions, his involvement with a local congregation must be reasonably limited. Many factors can influence such limitation of involvement. The significance of that local congregation in the larger picture of the kingdom of God, the faithfulness of the people and the leadership of that local congregation to the word of God, the nature and scope of his own gifts and calling, the realistic expectations for the future of that local gathering, etc. Long-term relational and economic investment, for example, in the church in Jerusalem before A.D. 70 would have been unreasonable, as would be the same in a local church in some mining town of declining population and no future. Also, for someone of the gifts and calling of Apostle Paul, undue commitment of time and effort and resources to some local gathering of Christians as over against commitment to the broader church community would be a gigantic waste of resources. Imagine Paul in our modern local churches today, forced to change diapers to prove he is a true Christian. For the pessimist, such consideration of the future and accounting of resources are useless. No effort of man has any meaning in the greater picture, because there is no greater picture to start with. An optimist first sees the greater picture. He first sees the future, not the current static conditions, and therefore his strategy is from the greater to the smaller, not the other way around. Thus, it is not a surprise that mandatory local church membership became a dominant principle in the church in the 20th century, when pessimistic eschatologies like premillennialism and amillennialism made the church abandon its commitment to building the kingdom of Christ and replaced it with withdrawal from the world. But Reformed Baptists lost that commitment as early as 1689. During the English Commonwealth, they were still carried along in the optimism of all the other Reformed groups. After the Restoration, Reformed Baptists never again thought of themselves as conquerors who would create a new world order for Christ, or would mandate the moral, ideological, and social terms of the society. Even for the most optimistic of them, victory was not in changing history, but only in remaining faithful in their isolated communities against a hostile and powerful world. Even today in any Baptist church, the history of the Baptists is told in terms of survival against all odds, not in terms of conquest against all odds. Even where Baptists were able to achieve numerical superiority against all the other faiths, as in the American South in the 20th century, they still did not create a dominant Christian culture. It was puzzling to many of us in 2012 how and why Southern Baptists failed to support the only candidate who, professedly Baptist, had his profession of faith on the homepage of his campaign website and specifically related his political platform to the Bible, Ron Paul. They instead were trying to decide between one Roman Catholic and another Roman Catholic, both of whom supported, at one time or another, Planned Parenthood. It is just as puzzling today how and why a judge in Alabama can be removed from his position for opposing abortion by a panel of judges, most of whom are members in good standing of Baptist churches, and their churches do nothing about it. The answer is that these churches had that same pessimistic eschatology we talked about above, and therefore they cannot see anything in the world outside their small ghettos. It is that same pessimism that has brought about the concept of local church membership. Whatever a man does outside the walls of the ghetto has no consequence at all. All that matters is what he does inside the ghetto. Because the world outside the ghetto is unconquerable anyway, 
and there's no hope of building a Christian civilization or culture. And when the same ghetto eschatology was adopted by the other branches of the Reformed family, the same concept of mandatory local church membership was adopted as well. Where the eschatology of the church is optimistic, there are no walls of self-encapsulation. This concludes Part 1 of And in One Holy Local Church, The Ghettoization of Protestantism by Bojidar Marinov. Please visit christendomrestored.com to read all three parts and stay tuned for Part 2 and 3 of the audio article. Part 2 God of Lone Rangers, Destroyer of Systems It is for this reason the church in the past was not against, and certainly not afraid of, sending out Christians as lone rangers, or of accepting them as a necessary part of its own growth. In fact, in the early centuries of the church, Christian lone rangers were praised for their commitment and courage, and their lives were immortalized in official biographies. The literary genre of the biography or the autobiography was in fact very characteristic to the Christian culture. For only the Christian culture valued the individual person enough to make his life worthy of being recorded. And of those whose lives were recorded and read in the early church, even as part of the worship service, at times, the vast majority were ascetics or lone missionaries. There was a theological reason for that, and it had to do with the new status of man under God in relation to the society. Paganism has always been thoroughly collectivist and statist. It has always tried to bind the individual to a visible, organized society. It was on this issue where Aristotle and Plato, so different from each other in so many respects, agreed that man needs a visible society to be man. Aristotle even denied human nature to those men who were lone rangers, who didn't need any society. Quote, and why man is a social animal in a greater measure than any bee or any gregarious animal is clear. Dot, dot, dot. It is clear, therefore, that the state is also prior by nature to the individual, for if each individual, when separate, is not self-sufficient, he must be related to the whole state as other parts are to their whole, while a man who is incapable of entering into partnership, or who is so self-sufficing that he has no need to do so, is no part of a state, so that he must be either a beast or a god. End quote. Aristotle's words were accepted as normative throughout the world of classical Greece and Rome. He based his argument on natural law, on the evidence from nature, and everyone just saw that man just needs the collective to be truly man. Collectivism is inherent in paganism, and the classical world knew nothing of lone rangers. Christianity, however, opposed to it a new theology of man, and that is, a man with God, even if alone against the whole world, is in the majority. We have some today who, imagining they are doing service to God, write treaties against lone rangers, throwing on them the blame for the failures of the church in the last one century. What they really are rendering is not service to God, but restoration of paganism and secularism in all its collective infamy, in all its distrust of self-control under God of all its scorn of the individual who has a higher, transcendent calling, independent of man-made social engineering, even when such men are sincere in their imaginations of the alleged danger of Lone Rangers, they are still defending an anti-Christian worldview, a worldview that is unbiblical and therefore also self-destructive. Of course, the easiest debunking of their imaginations is done by the question, 
What Lone Ranger can you name that has been a major factor for the failures and the decline of the church in the last one century? There is none that could be named. To the contrary, all the false doctrines in the church in the last one century, doctrines that have crippled the church and have made it passive and powerless and devoid of optimism, eschatological pessimism, premillennialism and amillennialism, pietism, antinomianism, statism, Armenianism, etc., have been taught and promoted by celebrities, men of enormous following, of duly constituted local congregations or denominations or seminaries. On the other hand, lone rangers have been usually busy trying to repair the damage done by the ecclesiastics. And among those lone rangers, one can mention a number of names like R.J. Rushduni, Arthur Pink, Leonard Ravenhill, etc., Believing that lone rangers are by default dangerous to the church, while institutional churchmen are by default faithful Christians, doesn't reveal a sound Christian mind. It only reveals an amazing blindness to the covenant realities of our age. But it also reveals blindness to the realities of the biblical message. For in the Bible, the God we see is not a God of institutional systems. To the contrary, we see a God who destroys institutional systems the moment they prove to be in rebellion against Him. And guess what? He does it through independent individuals, through those same lone rangers, whom so many, like Jeff Durbin today, denounce as not being members of the church. Are there lone rangers in the Bible? There certainly are, a whole host of them. We don't even have to mention Jesus, the author of our faith, who stood alone against two systems, the Roman Empire and the Jewish religious leadership. Such mention might be a stumbling block to many, but we have many lesser men who were alone and yet, with God, stood against systems and collectives. We have Abraham, who was called out of his home and of his family to wander alone all his life. Yes, Abraham had his household, but he was still called alone, according to Isaiah 51.2. God didn't call a congregation out of Ur. He called one man alone. We have Moses, who was similarly called out of his people and spent 40 years of his life alone among unbelievers, and then another 40 years alone in the wilderness. It was there, alone in the wilderness, that God called him for his mission. And even later, when he had the largest single congregation the world has ever seen, God still required that Moses was alone before him when he delivered his law. Exodus 24.2 We have Elijah of whom we never have a single record ever submitting to a local congregation or elders or serving his local community. Who are your elders, Elijah? Amazingly, Jesus specifically underscores the fact that if Elijah ever helped any widow in her distress, it was a widow outside the covenantal community. Luke 4.26 Much of his life Elijah spent alone, fed by ravens, or living in the house of a pagan widow, or on Mount Horeb, and yet, he continued prophesying against Israel. Ahab's complaint in 1 Kings 18.17 against Elijah echoes almost exactly Jeff Durbin's complaint against Facebook prophets. You troubler of Israel. An official leader of the covenantal community speaks in the name of the collective against a lone ranger. On whose side was God is the relevant question here. We can quote multiple other examples of lone rangers in the Old Testament, all summarized in Hebrews 11.38, and all praised for their faith. Men of whom the world was not worthy, wandering in deserts and mountains and caves and holes in the ground. Do we have examples of unrighteous, wicked lone rangers? People who stood against the visible covenanted community and its system of legitimate government just out of pride, not of love for God? 
We do, at least one, Jeroboam, 1 Kings 11-12. He rebelled against the rule of King Solomon and against the rule of his son Rehoboam. We need to remember, King Solomon's rule was much more legitimate and lawfully established than the leadership of any modern Baptist or Presbyterian church. It was established directly by God, confirmed with prophecies and miracles. Modern Presbyterian and Baptist churches have nothing whatsoever to show to prove the legitimacy of their so-called elders, except for the votes of other men, of whose legitimacy there is no proof either. And given the decline of Christianity in the U.S. today, their illegitimacy is well attested by God's curse on the modern church. And yet, in this situation of one unrighteous lone ranger against a legitimately constituted authority over the covenanted community, God sided with the lone ranger and sent his prophets to encourage and support the lone ranger and it started as early as the reign of Solomon, 1 Kings 11.26-40. We see the same thing in the New Testament. John the Baptist set the pattern in the New Testament, living alone in the wilderness without submitting to the properly constituted religious establishment I have not read a single Baptist commentary explaining why a lone hermit outside any religious structures or ordination would be a lawful authority to perform baptism, nor a Presbyterian commentary for that matter. We see Jesus rebuking the disciples when they wanted to forbid a man from casting out demons, Mark 9, 38-40, Luke 9, 49-50. The man was such a lone ranger that we don't even have his name recorded. We see a lone evangelist, Philip, baptizing the Ethiopian, Acts 8, who returned to his country and must have been the only Christian there, given that Ethiopians were not mentioned among the converts in Acts 2. The Apostle Paul is not usually thought of as a lone ranger, but the testimony of the book of Acts and some of his own epistles give us enough indication that he was a man of independent spirit and thought very little of official organizational structures. Before he went on his first missionary journey, there apparently was some sort of laying of hands on him by the prophets and teachers, no elders mentioned, in Antioch in Acts 13, 1-3. And yet, the text clearly emphasizes the fact that the sending was done by the Holy Spirit himself. Paul himself never referred to the church in Antioch as his congregation or sending church. He never mentioned his ordination by men. The question so darn cherished by modern ecclesiocrats, who are your elders? seems to be ignored completely by Paul. In fact, if anything, Paul insisted to the Galatians that he was ordained and sent not by men, Galatians 1.1. And it is to these same Galatians, chapter 2, 11-21, that Paul told about the incident in Antioch, in the very church that laid hands on him and sent him out, to which church Paul should have submitted if he obeyed our modern churchian mythologies of submission to the local church. Keep in mind that by the time of that incident, Paul was still not the authority he is today. He had finished only one missionary journey, not a very impressive feat, yet, for many others, had done missions too. He had just returned from the council in Jerusalem which approved of his work. But remember, at that council, Paul was not a participating apostle, but a defendant. The council was a church court, and Paul was examined for the orthodoxy of his ideas and practices. One of his judges was Peter himself. A few weeks or months later, the two met in the church in Antioch, where Paul dared challenge Peter for his practices and views. Remember, Paul was still nobody compared to the chief of the apostles. No one in the church shared Paul's views. The text clearly says that the rest of the Jews and even his beloved Barnabas joined Peter in his hypocrisy. It was a clear position of the majority in the church. 
the chief of the apostles, the elders and the members of the church, and even Paul's closest associates. Nothing in our modern churchian mythologies of submission and local church membership can explain Paul's actions when he saw that hypocrisy. The man who just recently was a defendant in a church court, a nobody compared to everyone else, alone against the whole church, opposed the chief of the apostles to his face and accused him of hypocrisy and of nullifying the grace of God and of the sacrifice of Christ. Yes, this relatively recent convert to the face of the apostle who personally saw Christ, lived with Christ, and received personally Christ's last testament to care for his church. John 21, 15-17 We don't know what Peter's immediate response was. We know that eventually he came to agree with Paul, for in his second epistle written 10-15 to 15 years later, he spoke highly of Paul in his writings. 1 Peter 3.15 But whatever his response was at that moment, there is a lesson here for Jeff Durbin, that even if a lone ranger came to him, and opposed him to his face in his own church, in front of everyone, Jeff better not be quick to dismiss him, for he may be dismissing God himself, let alone those Facebook prophets that he so loves to dismiss. Until Jeff Durbin learns this kind of humility and submission, to accept correction no matter where it comes from, he is still unqualified to tell others how to submit. There's an even greater lesson in all these examples of lone rangers in the Bible. And that is that God almost never speaks nor gives prophetic word through established church hierarchies. He always prefers to speak through lone individuals. And that when a covenanted organization faces a lone individual who denounces the organization or calls it to repentance, odds are God is who raised that lone individual. 1 Kings 11. And the formal legitimacy of the organization is of absolutely no consequence to God and to his covenant. Anyone who denounces prophets or adversaries solely on the basis of their lack of local church membership or because they are lone rangers is biblically and covenantally blind and has chosen the road to destruction. Paul had a good reason to say, Do not despise prophecies, 1 Thessalonians 5.20. God is a God of lone rangers and a destroyer of man-made systems. The Modern Mythologies of Submission, Accountability, and Church Discipline There isn't and has never been any biblical argument in favor of mandatory local church membership. The Bible just doesn't mention it, and in fact, it clearly indicates that God supports individuals against collectives more often than He supports collectives against individuals. For one reason or another, men in collectives are much more tempted to stand against Him than men who are alone. Because there is no biblical argument for mandatory local church membership, modern churchmen resort to a rationalist argument. Without local church membership, there could be no submission to elders, no accountability, and no church discipline. This fact needs to be emphasized no matter how popular this argument is today among modern ecclesiocrats. No matter how often they use it in their sermons and lectures and writings, the argument is not biblical. It cannot be found in the Bible, and it cannot be reasonably derived from any biblical teaching whatsoever, for it clearly contradicts the biblical evidence. Submission, accountability, and church discipline in the Bible were clearly done without an additional covenant or any other additional burden related to local church membership. A presuppositional analysis of the argument shows clearly that it is a rationalist argument, not a biblical argument. It starts with a a priori definition of submission as submission to the local church, of accountability as accountability to the local church, and discipline as discipline by the local church. Once the local church has been included as a necessary condition in the very definitions of these things, 
then of course the question is asked, how do you have submission, accountability, or discipline without the local church? It is the same propaganda trick used by socialists today. Their definitions of welfare and charity include mandatory redistribution of wealth as a necessary condition. So their answer to any libertarian solution is, how will we have charity if the government doesn't tax the rich? Roads, of course, are always by definition built by the government. Private entities can't build roads. Therefore, who's going to build the roads? Education is by default government education. So when we call for the abolition of government schools, the answer is, how would people get education then? The examples of such propaganda manipulation are everywhere around us. In the same way, the modern churchian leaders, after they have redefined submission, accountability, and discipline, ask the same manipulative propaganda question. Without local church membership, how can we have submission, accountability, or discipline? And yet, when we look at the results in the American church of the last one century, when the doctrine of local church membership became dominant, we don't see the claimed results. Not only discipline and accountability are at an all-time low, but the church in America has been losing the cultural war for three generations in a row. Whatever the churchmen imagine about the value of their local church membership, it apparently contributes nothing to the strength of the church. Baptists, of course, have always been all over the place theologically and practically. As early as the 1640s, there were several Baptist confessions in England, some Calvinist, some extreme Armenian. The 19th century continued the same divide, and there were groups spinning off the two main branches who went into a lot of heretical ideologies. Even today, there is no unified view among Baptists, even within the same denomination. Just recently, a high-level celebrity within the Southern Baptist Convention called for the excommunication of all the Calvinists from the convention. As if that was not enough, another celebrity status pastor recently declared that one's salvation is dependent on voting for Donald Trump. It took the SBC more than 50 years after the beginning of the Christian homeschool movement to come to some sort of unified, although unclear, position on who should be teaching the children of Christian parents. Some churches in the denomination have accepted sodomite marriage. One would think that this is where at least Baptists would draw the line, but no. And the situation is even worse when one looks at more than just the SBC, and when one looks at more than just theological and practical views. No matter how one tries to twist the historical and modern evidence, the truth is, Baptists, who have had a confessional requirement for mandatory local church membership for three and a half centuries, have, of all the Protestant groups, the worst possible record of accountability and church discipline. The other groups and denominations, Presbyterians, Episcopalians, Anglican, Methodists, Dutch Reformed, Hungarian Reformed, Lutheran, have not had such confessional requirement. And while there have been splits and problems, all of them together could not rival the theological and ideological chaos within the Baptist movement. Until the 20th century, and when all these groups also accepted the Baptist ideology of ghettoization of the church. And guess what? It led to the same result as with the Baptists. Not only numerous splits, but also a proliferation of anti-biblical ideologies within their churches, not to mention hundreds of cases of scandalous behavior and practices and outright betrayal of the basic principles of the gospel, which remain not only unpunished, but in some cases are encoded as normative in the very constitutions of some churches. In the face of the overwhelming historical and current evidence, only a severely blind and brainwashed person can seriously claim that mandatory local church membership is necessary for maintaining accountability and discipline in the church. 
And indeed, such blindness is common in the American church today, because these terms have not been taken in their biblical meaning. They have been rather developed into a modern mythology, a mythology designed to solidify the power of the churchian elites over the mass of ordinary Christians. As we know from R.J. Rushduni's extensive studies on the sociological and political implications of paganism and Christian theism, that is, Trinitarianism, all pagan mythologies and religions and ideologies are by default statist and collectivist to the core. We also saw Aristotle's declaration that one who doesn't need a society is not even a human. There is a good reason for such collectivism. Paganism has a problem with the issue of unity. If there isn't a transcendent God-creator of the world, polytheism or atheism, or if that God is silent, Islam or Arianism, or if that God is silent on the current application of his word, modern churchian cessationism, which is nothing more than baptized rationalism, then there can be no transcendent principle of cohesion between men in the city. Or at the very least, such principle would be impossible to know and comprehend. If there is no such principle, then it is left to human agencies to provide it for the men in the society. If there is such a principle, it will be so concealed that only an enlightened or spiritual elite would be able to decipher it and convey it to all, which is, again, human agencies providing cohesion and unity. No matter what, the starting point of a society's thinking is, if it is not consistent Trinitarianism, equal ultimacy of unity and plurality, or transcendence and immanence, to all its bitter conclusions, that society will tend to degenerate into some sort of collectivism. In the final account, an elite, educational, religious, military, political, will have to take over to provide the unity in that society. That is why all pagan religions and ideologies inevitably produce collectivist and totalitarian societies and cultures. Once the issue of unity is thus placed in the hands of an elite, of a human agency, then that human agency must be declared divine, for no challenge to its power can be tolerated. The issue, note well, is not just political or organizational. It is first and foremost religious. Belonging to the collective, submitting to its elite, elders, leaders, commanders, or whatever you name it, becomes now a fundamental part of the life, of the member of the society. It is God's design for him. His refusal to be under the care of his beloved leaders by default means that he despises authority, for not being under the care of the elite means that a man despises unity as it is defined by the elite. Remember, there is no unity except for whatever unity the elite provides. Thus, in all paganism, the individual is always viewed with suspicion and distrust. Lone rangers are always expected to be troublemakers destroyers of that divine unity and cohesion provided by the elite. All society, theory, and practice of paganism, or of that deficient Christianity which defies the collective, as in Jeff Durbin's statement, therefore has for its goal the subjection of the individual and the atomic placement of the elite above all judgment, all accountability, above all discipline. Unless the leaders are free of accountability, there could be no protection against the danger of free men who exercise their private judgment. Indeed, that is the very purpose of the modern mythologies of submission, accountability, or church discipline. They always speak of submission, accountability, and discipline for individuals. They never speak of submission, accountability, and discipline for church sessions. 
There is never a word in all their writings and speaking of what the obligations of church sessions are, and therefore of what the punishments for church sessions are when they don't meet their obligations. One of my elders in the past, involved in planning a church with other elders, had to sit through a meeting listening to their talk about the different levels of government, family, church, and state, about their rights and responsibilities, and about the biblical principles of mutual control between these levels of government. For example, what the church can speak to the government in terms of correction, or to the family, etc. At some point of the discussion, he asked, Aren't we missing one level of government, the most important one? What about self-government, its responsibilities, and its right to correct and discipline the other governments? The session went silent for a moment, then ignored his words, and continued as if he had said nothing. I wish it was just one church session, but it is not. There is not a single book of church order in any church or denomination in the U.S. today which acknowledges the rights and responsibilities of self-government and allows its certain power and privileges over church government. Self-government doesn't exist, or, if it exists, it is only pro forma, in the form of submission to the local church. You have to submit to the local church, otherwise you don't have self-government. The question is, of course, submit to what? What are you going to ask me to do? But that answer is left conveniently vague in the books of the modern ecclesiocrats. Under these modern mythologies, there is never the question of accountability or discipline for the local session. Who is Jeff Durbin accountable to? Just to his session, which consists of his hand-picked closest friends? If this is accountability, then anyone can claim accountability to his buddies. Who can excommunicate Jeff Durbin and his session if they commit injustice as a session? Is such accountability of his session included in his church's constitution? Does it say who can excommunicate the session if they commit injustice? Back in the 1980s, cops from the LAPD's SWAT team tortured activists of Operation Rescue on the streets of Los Angeles. They also kicked a pregnant mother until her unborn baby died. The cops were led by Bob Vernon, who was also an elder in John MacArthur's church. Vernon had the full support of his local church leadership, and later, John MacArthur had an honor service for the same cops who had brutalized other Christians and had murdered an unborn baby. No repentance came out from either Vernon or MacArthur's church elders, not even a formal apology. Who holds MacArthur responsible for supporting this murder? Who can take MacArthur to court and excommunicate him if found guilty? And Jeff Durbin calls MacArthur a hero of the faith? Does that mean that one day, if for one reason or another Apologia's church session commits the same crime, there will be no accountability for them? Yes, that's what it means. That's the very purpose of the modern mythologies of submission, accountability, and church discipline. It is to rob individual Christians of their Christian liberty and to establish the power of churching elites over the individual conscience of their members. It is to free the churching celebrities of our age of all accountability and to make them invulnerable to all discipline. As I pointed in my article on Modern Presbyterianism and the Destruction of the Principle of Plurality of Elders, no matter what decision a church session makes, there is no punishment, no accountability, no discipline. As long as an elder doesn't go rogue, that is, doesn't go against the collective of other elders, he can commit any kind of injustice in agreement with other elders and get away with it. And this is not limited to Presbyterianism. It applies to every single session of every single church or denomination in the U.S. 
The only possible solution to this problem of the lack of accountability and discipline for churchian celebrities and elites is when individual people start leaving their churches, realizing the corruption of the modern so-called elders and their so-called sessions. Since there is no accountability for the very leaders who demand accountability, and since there is no discipline for the same people who claim to enforce discipline, then those individual members of their flocks who want to remain faithful to Christ and His true church, not to the fake churches of today, have only one resort, leave, and also take their money with them and quit supporting the fake leaders of today, and perhaps even take their money to the true prophets and teachers of God who have not bowed their knees to Baal, like that man of Baal, Shalisha, literally, the Lord of the Trinity, in Second Kings 4.42, who instead of bringing the bread of his first fruits to the temple, as well as according to the law, Exodus 23.19, brought it to Elisha, the prophet of God, and Elisha did not return him to the temple, but used the bread to perform one of those miracles of a little of bread multiplied for a multitude of people. Apparently, God was quite pleased that the man did not obey his law in the ceremonial detail, but obeyed it in its spirit. And if the temple that was established personally by God did not deserve the first fruits, why should our modern local churches who have proven to be fake and useless deserve any better? And this is where the doctrine of the mandatory local church membership comes to play its most important role. Not to secure accountability and discipline, not at all, but to secure the loyalty of the individual Christians. Because you know, unless you are a member and you give your tithe to a church without holding them accountable, you are not a true Christian. And if you dare hold them accountable, don't forget you are a member. You have made a covenant to submit, and they can excommunicate you while you have no recourse against them. It has nothing to do with real discipline and real accountability. The doctrine is specifically made to protect the elites. As R.J. Rushduni said, commenting on the local church, the attitude of the modern man is that status is a license for irresponsibility. That attitude has become encoded in the mythologies of submission, accountability, and church discipline. And that's why the church has been in this sorry state for the last 100 years. Submission to church bureaucrats is not in the Bible. The mythology of submission to elders needs a special section in this article, given that it has become the main objection to the universal view of the church encoded in the Confessions. It is one of these mantras of the modern church that have been gullibly accepted as true by default by millions of Christians without checking with their Bibles as true Bereans to see if the Bible really supports such concept. I wish I could include a subsection with an epistemological analysis of this theory of power and submission to power. But this will make this article a little too long. Perhaps I will do it in a future article where I will discuss similar theories supporting the different sorts of collectivisms raising their heads in the church today. Establishmentarianism, patriarchalism, high churchism, etc. Suffice to say here that such theory of power and submission is not based on the Bible and is not supported by the covenantal worldview of the Bible. It is based rather on the natural law theory. It is under the natural law theory that naturally existing power must be necessarily exercised or it is wasted. A person in power is supposed to actively use his power to force others to do good, not let it lie passively, and only use it to prevent them from doing evil. The father in the family as the most powerful person in the family, the ruler in civil government as the most powerful person in a geographical territory, the session of elders in the church, as those who wield the power of ultimate decisions in the church, would be wasting the power given to them if they don't use it to make individuals follow their agenda. 
Thus, individuals would be disrespecting authority if they rely on their own individual judgment and maturity, if they follow their own agenda and vision and mission, especially if that individual agenda and vision and mission is not approved by the powerful of the day, or licensed or permitted by them. This, again, will be left for a future article. For now, enough to remember that modern statism did not appear out of nothing. It was molded after modern church collectivism, or the same doctrine of submission to elders that is so popular today in our churches. The biblical doctrine of power and submission is exactly the opposite to that of natural law. The law of God clearly limits the extent of all power in the society and leaves the greatest power to self-government. The New Testament supports this rugged individualism of the law by declaring that the head of every man is Christ, 1 Corinthians 11.3, not his pastors or elders, nor his civil government. In addition to that, Jesus specifically declared that in his kingdom, the pagan order of hierarchy, from the powerful to the weak, is turned on its head, and it is those who serve that are the true authority, not those of power. And there arose also a dispute among them as to which one of them was regarded to be greatest. And he said to them, The kings of the Gentiles lord it over them, and those who have authority over them are called benefactors. But it is not this way with you. But the one who is the greatest among you must become like the youngest, and the leader like the servant. For who is greater, the one who reclines at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at the table? But I am among you as the one who serves. Luke twenty-two, twenty-four through 27 In the kingdom of God, legal or physical or intellectual or governmental or ecclesiastical power is not the basis for authority. In fact, the opposite is true. The less a man uses his power to lord over other people, and the more he uses to serve, as the one who serves at the table, the higher his authority is. This reversed system of power versus authority is apparently very important, given that Jesus repeats the same principle multiple times. See, for example, Matthew 20, 25-28, 23-11, Mark 9, 35-37, 10, 42-45, Luke 9, 46-48, etc. Even more than that, the more power a man is given, the more he must be held accountable and the worse the punishments on him in case he commits transgression. Luke 12, 48. The men who are given more power in the church or in any society should not be also given submission, for this will lead to a pagan order of things. To the contrary, they must be held to the strictest standards, under severe control, constantly supervised, and immediately punished and sacked in case of transgression. Only in a pagan social order, submission is given to men in power. In a covenantal society, submission is given only to servants. Servants are given all the freedom they need to work and serve. Powerful men are kept on a short leash and immediately rebelled against and punished when they cross their lines. Thus, contrary to all the modern mythologies of some biblical command to submit to elders in the sense of church bureaucrats, the Bible contains no such command. It certainly contains commandments to submit to authority, but, following Jesus' statement quoted above, that authority has nothing to do with legal power or structures in the churches. To start with, the only verse that specifically says, Submit to your elders, in the English translation, clearly doesn't have elders as church leaders. You younger men, likewise, be subject to your elders. 1 Peter 5.5 5. 
The clear meaning of the word elders is the original direct meaning, older men. That's the meaning of the word presbus in Greek. The counterpoint between older, presbuteros, and younger, neoteros, is the same as in 1 Timothy 5.1. Do not sharply rebuke an older man, but rather appeal to him as a father, to the younger men as brothers. The objection here may be that Peter perhaps had in mind church elders, given that the context in the first four verses of 1 Peter 5 indicates men in formal office. Such formal office, however, has to be assumed first before read into those verses. And even then, it is not clear on why only the younger ones are admonished to obey. Aren't the older non-elders not commanded to obey? The more biblical interpretation of the word elders, in Peter's words, is not church administrators, but men of authority. Whether these men had any official legal power in the church or not, the same Greek word of be subject, hupotasso, is applied in other places for different circumstances, but an important one in respect to submit is 1 Corinthians 16.16, where Paul commands the church at Corinth to be in subjection to such, and from the previous verse, the such, as the household of Stephanus. Obviously, the whole household can't be a group of church administrators, for the word includes also the women in the household, and, if you are a paedobaptist, the children as well. The special position of authority of Stephanus's household was that they were the first fruits of Achaia and have devoted themselves for ministry to the saints. Their authority of elders older in the faith than in anyone else in that church, had nothing to do with their position of legal power, but with their service. That is, just as Jesus said it should be. It's the servants who should be rendered submission, not the rulers. The same focus on submission for service is in Hebrews 13.17. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Again, the assumption that the leaders here are church bureaucrats is unwarranted. The description would fit anyone in a position of teaching and influence and authority, whether they are church bureaucrats or not. It, in fact, would exclude those of the modern church elders who can't demonstrate being responsible for anyone's soul. Such deserve no obedience and submission whatsoever, no matter what their official title in the church is. This point is even further emphasized in 1 Timothy 5.17. The elders who rule well are to be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. This is the closest statement in the Bible of obedience, or rather, double honor, to church officers. For the designation elder is clearly connected to the word rule, and yet, even here, double honor is only conditional. The elders who rule well? If we assume that the verse speaks of church administrators or officers, the question that we need to ask is, who decides which elders rule well and which don't? If you ask the church bureaucrats themselves, they will all say that they rule well. We already know what the standard is for good rule, service. But who or what institution decides if any elder lives up to that standard? To answer this question, we need to raise from oblivion one of the most important and yet the most forgotten doctrines of the Reformation, a doctrine that in previous centuries was understood to be the mark of Protestantism by every single Reformed theologian, and yet today is never mentioned by any supposedly Reformed celebrity. And in the few places where it is mentioned, it is only to be rejected, maligned, and ridiculed. The doctrine of the right and duty of private judgment. The priesthood of all believers and the right and duty of private judgment. What is missing from the mythologies of the modern ecclesiocrats 
is one of the foundational doctrines of the Reformation, namely, the priesthood of all believers. Not that the modern Reformed celebrities don't mention that doctrine, but the way they teach it is vastly different from what the Reformers meant by it. A number of examples can be presented of the modern, twisted meaning of this doctrine, but this article by Ligonier would be a good example. With a succinct presentation of it, a royal priesthood in Christ. Going to the Old Testament for the meaning of our priesthood, the article ends with the following summary. Quote, in Christ, there is a true priesthood of all believers. All of us who trust in Jesus alone for salvation have free access into his presence, and all of our lawful vocations are set apart for true God-honoring service. End quote. Notice what the priesthood is limited to. To our access to God and to our salvation, that is, our priesthood is limited to our passive standing before God, and perhaps our daily job routine as well. This is entirely in agreement with the modern mythologies of submission, as we discuss them above. Whatever we do, as individuals and priests, we do not have any authority above and beyond our own personal life and salvation. All that our priesthood counts for is our salvation, nothing else. But the author of this Ligonier article is wrong. This is not what the function of the priesthood was in the Old Testament. And this is certainly not what the Reformers had in mind when they proclaimed the priesthood of all believers. A priest was not simply one who was personally saved by having direct access to God. Such idea of a priest personally saved may be a good pagan idea, but it certainly is not a biblical idea. The concept of priesthood was a concept of mediatorial service, of judiciary authority in the name of God and based on His law. It was not the direct access to God that defined a priest. In fact, only one priest entered the Holy of Holies once a year. If anyone had direct access to God all the time, it seems to be the prophets, not the priests. People were saved without being priests, directly from by God. People could offer to God without a priest, or could make their offering to non-priests, 2 Kings 4.42. Non-priests could enter the temple and eat of the bread that was only for the priests. But the function of the priests was to read the law and to interpret it to other people. It was not their status before God that defined them as priests. It was their function to the world outside the temple, and even outside the covenanted community, that defined them as priests. They were supposed to read the word, and judge everything based on their understanding of the word. Yes, judge, even the church and the other priests of the covenanted community. Thus, we come to one of the most puzzling of all paradoxes of modern Protestantism, the complete disappearance of the doctrine of the right and duty of private judgment from our modern pulpits. This was part of Luther's idea of the priesthood of all believers, that every believer is entitled to his private judgment as to what the Word of God says, and is obligated to exercise his private judgment in relation to whatever the church or the civil authorities say. Any submission to any kind of authority must start from the personal conscience of the individual, and therefore from his private judgment. There was more to Luther's idea, of course, and it was the priesthood of all believers made it the rule that any Christian has the mandate to preach the word of God to any authorities and to any audience, whether he has a permission from bishops or popes or not. Submission to authorities, in Luther's view, was to be conditional. And the condition was whatever the authorities said must be first judged by the individual based on his understanding of the Bible. Private judgment was specifically included in the Reformed Confessions of Faith as one of the legitimate sources of knowledge, on the same level as church councils, and a need to be judged by the Word of God, just as much as the opinions of the church councils. 
Quote, the supreme judge by which all controversies of religion are to be determined, and all decrees of councils, opinions of ancient writers, doctrines of men, and private spirits, are to be examined, and in whose sentence we are to rest, can be no other but the Holy Spirit speaking in Scripture. End quote. WCF 1.10, LBCF 1.10. It was on this basis, and on the basis of their struggles against the prelacy, that the early Presbyterians in Scotland and the Puritans and other dissenters in England developed the concept of private judgment as an application of the priesthood of all believers to the position of a fundamental doctrine of the Reformed faith among a small modern sect today who fancy themselves to be spiritual heirs of the Scottish Covenanters. It is fashionable to lambast private judgment and to extol collective decisions of churchian councils as if they are the last time the Holy Spirit has spoken, similar to the Romanists, after the Council of Trent. But the truth is, the original Covenanters trusted private judgment far more than any of the modern supposedly Reformed theologians. No less of an authority than George Gillespie declared the importance of private judgment. Quote, the subordinate judgment, which I call private, is the judgment of discretion whereby every Christian, for the certain information of his own mind and the satisfaction of his own conscience, may and ought to try and examine as well the decrees of councils as the doctrine of particular pastors, and in so far to receive and believe the same as he understands them to agree with the scriptures. End quote. George Gillespie, a dispute against the English Popish ceremonies. Gillespie was consistent, and he did not change his mind when it came to Presbyterianism, but actually denied the right even of a Presbyterian government to discard private judgment. Quote, the prelates did not allow men to examine, by the judgment of Christians and private discretion, their decrees and canons, so as to search the scriptures and look at the warrants, but would needs have men think it enough to know the things to be commanded by them are in places of power. Presbyterial government doth not lord it over men's consciences, but admitteth, yea, commandeth, the searching of the scriptures, whether these things that it holds forth be not so and doth not press men's consciences with sic volo, sic jubeo, but desireth they may do in faith what they do. End quote. George Gillespie, Aaron's Rod Blossoming, 1646. Earlier in that same book, Gillespie contends that when the church is not doing its job of a church, individual Christians have the right to leave, have no obligation to obey the church, and that they even have the right to speak to it with the same spirit as the prophets. Quoting Calvin himself to this regard, Quote, they, therefore, who give their will for a law and their authority for a reason, and answer all the arguments of their opponents by bearing down with the force of public constitution and the judgment of superiors, to which theirs must be conformed, do rule the Lord's flock with force and with cruelty, Ezekiel 34, 4, as lords over God's heritage, 1 Peter 5, 3, always, since men give us no leave to try their decrees and constitutions, that we may hold fast to no more than is good. God be thanked that we have a warrant to do it, without their leave, from his own word. 1 Thessalonians 5.21 Quote, If we rightly feel we are deprived of the faculty of questioning, it must be indicated by that same Spirit who speaks through his prophets, end quote, says Calvin. We will not then call any man rabbi, nor jurari en verba magistri, nor yet be Pythagorean disciples to the church herself, but we will believe her and obey her in so far only as she is the pillar and the ground of truth. End quote. George Gillespie, 
a dispute against the English popish ceremonies. Apparently, the original Covenanters were much more biblical than modern Presbyterians, and than Jeff Durbin, but being willing to both listen to prophets outside the church and to speak to the church's prophets outside it, with the same spirit who moved the prophets. Francis Turretin went as far as to say that individuals guided by the Holy Spirit were capable of finding out the meaning of Scripture. Quote, Rather, we hold only that private believers gifted with the Holy Spirit are bound to examine according to the Word of God, whatever is proposed for their belief or practice by the rulers of the church, as much as by individuals separately as by many congregated in a synod. Also, they are to believe that by the guidance of the Spirit, by pious prayers and diligent study of the Scriptures, they can better find out the meaning of Scripture in things necessary to salvation than whole synods receding from the Word of God and then a society which claims for itself, but falsely, the name of the true church. End quote. Francis Turretin, Institutes of Elenctic Theology, 1696. This was part of their indispensable office as priests and was meant to protect them against church tyranny and bondage. Quote, that cannot, therefore, be considered rashness or pride which belongs to the execution of an indispensable office imposed upon all believers nor under the pretext of avoiding pride ought believers to bind themselves and to divest themselves of their right in order that their consciences, by a blind obedience, may be reduced to bondage. Ibid. End quote. Turretin's conclusion is that individual Christians do not owe anyone any obedience in the matters of conscience, because such obedience would put their souls in danger. Quote, but in affairs of conscience, which have reference to faith, piety, and the worship of God, no one can usurp dominion over the conscience, nor are we bound to obey anyone, because otherwise we would be bound to error and impiety, and thus we would incur eternal punishment, and our consciences would be stained with vices without criminality, because we would be bound to obey superiors absolutely. End quote. Ibid. But these were Presbyterians. What about Reformed Baptists? Like Charles Spurgeon. England has never had a more stout defender of private judgment against all human authority than the Prince of Preachers. The examples from his sermons are too many to list, so we will have to limit them. The clearest of all is in his sermon on Luke twelve fifty four through 57 where he identifies private judgment and resistance against authority with manliness of spirit. Quote, he charges them to use their common sense and not submit themselves to be hoodwinked by their leaders. He asked, Judge you not even of yourselves what is right? Why bow yourselves down that scribes and Pharisees may go over you? Think and judge for yourselves like men. The Lord here declares the duty of private judgment and exhorts the people to use it, urging them to yield no more a slavish obedience to the mandates of their false leaders, but to use their own wits as they would upon ordinary matters and even of themselves judge what was right. The people needed awakening from spiritual slumber. They required to be exhorted to manliness of spirit, for they had so completely surrendered their judgments to their blind leaders that the most conspicuous signs of the time were unperceived by them. End quote. Obviously, Jeff Durbin's insistence of people submitting to the care of pastors would lead to unmanliness of spirit. One doesn't create true men by making them dependent on someone's care. Manliness is produced by maturity and maturity is produced by the ability of a man to deal with challenges alone, with the invisible God, against all visible odds. Jeff's call for all to find a safe space under leaders who are neither proven legitimate 
nor mature themselves will only create immature men. We have too many of those immature men. We need Spurgeon's manliness of spirit. For this we need private judgment to resist all human authority, yes, even that of Jeff's church. The right and duty of private judgment was so dear a doctrine of Spurgeon that he was willing to break his ties with his Baptist brethren over it, as one of the most important doctors of Protestantism. In 1888, he offered his resignation as a member of the Baptist Union of Great Britain and Ireland. His dissatisfaction with the Union was that it allowed membership to people who were questioning or rejecting basic biblical doctrines. A delegation from the Union was promptly sent to Spurgeon. His reply to the delegation was that the Union needed to have, quote, a simple basis of Bible truths. These are usually described as evangelical doctrines, end quote. He then gave the delegation the following list of those evangelical doctrines. Notice the order in which they were given. 1. The divine inspiration, authority, and efficiency of the Holy Scriptures. 2. The right and duty of private judgment in the interpretation of the Holy Scriptures. 3. The unity of the Godhead and the trinity of persons therein. 4. The utter depravity of human nature in consequence of the fall. 5. The incarnation of the Son of God his work of atonement for sinners of mankind, and his mediatorial intercession and reign. 6. The justification of the sinner by faith alone. 7. The work of the Holy Spirit in the conversion and sanctification of the sinner. 8. The immortality of the soul, the resurrection of the body, the judgment of the world by our Lord Jesus Christ, with the eternal blessedness of the righteous and the eternal punishment of the wicked. 9. The divine institution of the Christian ministry and the obligation and perpetuity of the ordinances of baptism and the Lord's Supper. These were the doctrinal priorities of the Prince of Preachers. The right to private judgment is in second place after the importance of the Holy Scriptures, before everything else. He was a good Calvinist, after all, and like Calvin in his institutes, started his priorities from the knowledge of God, which could only come from Scripture through private judgment in interpretation. The divine institution of Christian ministry comes last. What about the Baptist confessional requirement for local church membership? Nowhere on the list. Returning to the Presbyterian camp, Charles Hodge, of whom we talked above, also makes private judgment the mark of the Protestant faith and relates it to the centrality and the perspicuity of Scripture. He has a special section on private judgment in his systematic theology. Here's what one of the greatest theologians in the history of Presbyterianism has to say on this issue. Quote, what Protestants deny on this subject is that Christ has appointed any officer or class of officers in his church to whose interpretation of the scriptures the people are bound to submit as a final authority. What they affirm is that he has made it obligatory upon every man to search the scriptures for himself and determine on his own discretion what they require him to believe and to do. End quote. Echoing Turretin's statement of the danger of obeying men on matters of faith and conscience, Hodge continues, quote, Every man is responsible for his religious faith and his moral conduct. He cannot transfer that responsibility to others, nor can others assume it in his stead. He must answer for himself, and if he must answer for himself, he must judge for himself. It will not avail him in the day of judgment to say that his parents or his church taught him wrong. He should have listened to God, and obeyed him rather than men. End quote. We will talk later of the real meaning of church discipline, and that in the Bible. Contrary to our modern practices, it has absolutely nothing to do with church elders. 
Hodge himself makes the correct observation that divine admonishments in the Bible are always directed at the people in general, not at their elders. The people do not need anyone to stand between them and God in understanding Scripture. Quote, the Scriptures are everywhere addressed to the people, and not to the officers of the church, either exclusively or specially. The prophets were sent to the people and constantly said, Hear, O Israel, hearken, O ye people. Thus also the discourses of Christ were addressed to the people, and the people heard him gladly. All the epistles of the New Testament are addressed to the congregation, to the called of Jesus Christ, to the beloved of God, to those called to be saints, to the sanctified in Christ Jesus, to all who call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the saints which are in Ephesus, and to the faithful in Jesus Christ, or to the saints and faithful brethren which are in Colossae, and so, in every instance, it is the people who are addressed. To them are directed these profound discussions of Christian doctrine and these comprehensive expositions of Christian duty. They are everywhere assumed to be competent to understand what is written, and are everywhere required to believe and obey what thus came from the inspired messengers of Christ. They were not referred to any other authority from which they were to learn the true import of these inspired instructions. It is, therefore, not only to deprive the people of a divine right— to forbid the people to read and interpret the scriptures for themselves, but it is also to interpose between them and God and to prevent their hearing his voice, that they may listen to the words of men. End quote. This, of course, is in agreement with the description of the new covenant in Hebrews eight eleven and Jeremiah thirty one thirty four. The quotes from Charles Hodge to this regard are so many that we will have to limit them, but the last is important, for it not only defends the right to private judgment. It also establishes our duty to resist any alleged church minister who wants to mandate submission to a human authority. Quote, it need hardly be remarked that this right of private judgment is the great safeguard of civil and religious liberty. End quote. The principle of the right and duty of private judgment is not limited to Presbyterians and Baptists. It is common to all Reformed Christians. I will present in the conclusion of this article a very powerful quote by Hermann Bovink, a Dutch Reformed theologian. But for now, the next example will be from a Reformed Anglican bishop, J.C. Ryle himself, recently praised even by John MacArthur in his sermon as a Reformed authority, although MacArthur is probably ignorant of all the views J.C. Ryle taught. Ryle, a bishop of Liverpool, believed so much in private judgment that he even had a separate paper on it titled, well, Private Judgment, of course. Here's how J.C. Ryle describes what won the victory for the Protestant Reformation. Quote, there were three great doctrines or principles which won the battle of the Protestant Reformation. These three were, one, the sufficiency and supremacy of Holy Scripture, two, the right of private judgment, and three, justification by faith only, without the deeds of the law. End quote. The whole article is an amazing defense of the right, duty, and necessity of private judgment, so I won't quote all that is relevant, but one line is important to us here. For in it, Bishop Ryle comes to the logical conclusion of the concept of private judgment, and that is, that a true Christian has the right and the duty to stand alone against the whole church when necessary, and that local churches all come and go, but a Christian must stand on the truth of God even if that means to stand alone. Yes, that's an Anglican bishop saying it. Quote, the particular branches of the church are not infallible, as one of them may err. Many of them have fallen foully, or have been swept away. Where is the church of Ephesus at this day? Where is the church of Sardis at the present time? 
Where is Augustine's Church of Hippo in Africa? Where is Cyprian's Church of Carthage? They are all gone. Not a vestige of any of them is left. Shall we then be content to err, merely because the Church errs? Will our company be an excuse for our error? Will our erring in company with the Church remove our responsibility for our own souls? Surely it is a thousand times better for a man to stand alone and be saved than to err in company with the church and be lost. It is better to prove all things and go to heaven than to say, I dare not think for myself and go to hell. End quote. Jeff Durbin should pay attention. As a Baptist minister, it should be particularly alarming to him that a Presbyterian, Hodge, and an Episcopalian, Ryle, have a better view of Christian liberty and the rights and duties of the individual against the church. This is a very good sign that in his ecclesiology he is not reformed, but he has rather gone over to the side of Rome and their ecclesiology, making himself a little pope. Granted, he may be listening to other Baptist preachers whom he respects and esteems, but this may turn out to be a dangerous trust. For many Baptist ministers in America today are nothing more than practical papists in their view of their own congregations. To this list of Reformed theologians who held the right and duty of private judgment to be the distinguished mark of the Reformation, we can add other theologians like Heinrich Bollinger, Melanchthon, A. A. Hodge, John Owen, James Henley Thornwell, Robert Dabney, Richard Baxter, and many others. Obviously, the doctrine of private judgment was considered one of the most important doctrines of the Reformation and in the history of Reformed theology, no matter which part or group of the Reformed family one chooses. In fact, this is how the Reformation started, with Luther's firm affirmation of his right and duty to private judgment before a court of the political and church elite of the day. Quote, Unless I am convinced by the testimony of the Holy Scriptures by evident reason, for I can believe neither Pope nor councils alone, as it is clear that they have erred repeatedly and contradicted themselves, I consider myself convicted by the testimony of Holy Scripture, which is my basis. My conscience is captive to the Word of God. Thus I cannot and will not recant, because acting against one's conscience is neither safe nor sound. God help me. Amen. End quote. And it is for this reason the first thing he did after the Diet of Worms was not establish a new church hierarchy, but to translate the Bible into the language of the people, so that the people could exercise their right and duty of private judgment. To make it simple, without the right and duty to private judgment, there is no reformation, and we are back to papism. Isn't it strange, then, that the modern allegedly Reformed celebrities never even mention this doctrine, and very few, if any, of modern Reformed Christians even know about the doctrine and about its importance for the Reformation? John MacArthur has had 30-plus years of preachings, and his search on his name and private judgment doesn't yield any results. Same applies to Albert Moeller. Same applies to John Piper. Same applies to Michael Horton. Same applies to R. Scott Clark and all the other names at Westminster West. Same applies to R.C. Sproul. Same applies to a number of other modern Reformed celebrities. I don't follow Jeff Durbin's show, and I can't find any database of topics, but when I ask the people who follow it, they can't remember him ever speaking on the issue of private judgment. I have never heard a sermon on private judgment in any Reformed church I have been to. None of my friends can remember such a sermon or lecture ever, neither in church or at any seminary. I have had people who have been Presbyterians their whole lives and have been through hundreds and thousands of sermons and lectures, and when I mention private judgment, they are all against it. And they are deeply surprised when I tell them that it was actually one of the most important doctrines of the Reformation. On a side note, if we follow Spurgeon's declaration that exercising private judgment is manliness of spirit, 
Perhaps we have an explanation of why the modern church in America is so effeminate and devoid of manliness. Any conscientious reader should be deeply alarmed by now. How is it that a doctrine that just 100 years ago was considered one of the cornerstones of the Reformation and of Protestantism is today so well forgotten and never mentioned by the same teachers who should have been teaching us about it? What kind of Reformed theology have we been taught anyway? With so many claims of Calvinist revival in the churches today, how is it that the very doctrine that started the Reformation is missing? The reason should be obvious. The doctrine of the right and duty of private judgment can't coexist with the modern mythologies of mandatory local church membership and submission to the local church. Since according to the Confessions, quote, the purest churches under heaven are subject both to mixture and error, and in some have so degenerated as to become no churches of Christ, but synagogues of Satan, end quote. Then the burden is laid on the individual believer, filled with the Holy Spirit, to judge every word and every teaching and every practice of any local church and any pastor or elder or bishop. It's not just a right that he can exercise whenever he decides. It is a duty that he must exercise always, or according to Turretin, quote, an indispensable office imposed upon all believers, end quote. Even more than that, the individual believer must exercise that office even when he is alone against the whole church, and the whole church is clearly in error, just as Paul did in Antioch, Galatians 2. Without this duty of the individual believer, there is no reformation. When the individual believer, however, is bound by a special covenant into membership and submission to a local body, even if it is among the purest churches under heaven, this right and duty of private judgment is compromised. Yeah, yeah, I know. Modern ecclesiocrats use the excuse that such submission is not absolute. What they don't say, however, is that under the terms of local church membership, their power to declare excommunication continues to be absolute, and their immunity to sanctions is absolute. That is, the individual believer is not absolutely bound to obey what the elders say, but the elders are still free to do whatever they want with him. Just like with taxes, paying taxes is supposedly voluntary but the government will put you in prison and confiscate your belongings if you don't pay. The only challenge to their power comes when more and more people take seriously their right and duty of private judgment. For this is the same challenge that shook Rome in the Protestant Reformation. When the individual believers have the right and duty of private judgment, then the whole concept of submission to the local church becomes meaningless. Submission is owed only when the church is faithful to the Word of God. But then again, there is no necessity for a special oath of membership for that. Such oath has already been made in baptism. At the same time, when the local church goes against the word of God, then what is owed is not submission, but resistance and rebellion against the ungodly power of the elders, and also sanctions against the session up to excommunication. Of course, no church session would include such a clause in their church's constitution. So the only solution for the modern ecclesiocrats is to conveniently forget about the distinguishing mark of the Protestant Reformation, the doctrine of the right and duty of private judgment, and never mention it to their flocks, and instead return to a papist and cultist ecclesiology which elevates the elite and frees it from any sanctions, while subjecting the individuals in the church to its power. In Rushduni's words, quote, Where a strong doctrine of the Spirit is not operative and governing, a strong doctrine of the church replaces it, so that institutional controls and government replace the spirit, end quote. And conversely, in order to replace the spirit with institutional controls, 
The churchian elites need to rule out of the church the only way through which the spirit has always been operating in opposition to the elites, through the individual consciences of men. Thus, when John MacArthur complains about people moving from church to church, quote, never submitting to the care of elders, end quote, he accuses these people of, quote, misunderstanding of the believer's responsibility to the body of Christ, end quote. The truth is, MacArthur only shows his ignorance of the biblical teaching and of Reformed theology. Under the principle of the right and duty of private judgment, this is exactly what people should be doing, listening to sermons in the churches and judging the preachers according to the Word of God. What MacArthur wants is to be free of accountability to the Holy Spirit acting through the private judgment of the individual believers. In the same way, when Jeff Durbin wants to silence the Facebook prophets, he is not speaking for God, and he is certainly not speaking as a Reformed minister. All he wants is to be free of accountability before the court of private judgment, which court was the most distinguished characteristic of the Protestant Reformation. In that statement, Jeff Durbin was not speaking of the Church and was not speaking of the Holy Spirit. He was speaking for the interests of the modern corrupt Church hierarchy, which, to borrow from Tertullian, quote, he has driven the Holy Spirit out of the Church, end quote. This concludes Part 2, and in one holy local church, the ghettoization of Protestantism by Bojidar Marinov. This has been narrated by Jason Sanchez. Please visit christendomrestored.com to read all three parts of this article. Stay tuned for Part 3. Part 3. The Nature and Structure of the New Testament Church By now, we have shown the nakedness of a number of mythologies so dear to modern churchmen, Mandatory local church membership and the related to it vows and covenants are a novelty. It came from the cults and from political pressure on the churches. It contributes nothing to accountability in church discipline. To the contrary, it has destroyed accountability in church discipline. Submission to the local church is not biblical either. It is another mythology designed to rob the faithful of the right and duty of private judgment a right and duty for which saints in the past have died for. For anyone who has been influenced by these mythologies, the question now remains, how do we do church then? How do we gather as commanded in the New Testament? How do we practice church discipline and especially excommunication if there is no mandatory local church membership? These are good questions, but they are not answerable within the current paradigm of the church, exactly because the current paradigm was specifically designed to protect the ruling elites in the churches. While I am sure I won't be able to give here a comprehensive exposition of what the church is supposed to be, some basic principles need to be laid out so that we understand how the church should be organized and where our efforts should be directed to. Any study of the nature of the New Testament church must start with the nature and the promise of the New Covenant. Obviously, if our idea of church doesn't serve the New Covenant as it is declared in the Bible— then our idea of church is a fallacious idea, and it will lead to disastrous results, which has been the case in the last one century, obviously. One of the most important promises of the New Covenant was given to us in Jeremiah 31, 33, and 34. But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and on their heart I will write it, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people, they will not teach again, each man his neighbor and each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord. For they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord, 
for I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. The same verses are repeated in Hebrews 8, 8-12, in the context of the difference between the Old and the New Covenant. The concept of the New Covenant as a covenant in which every individual is directly taught by God and therefore doesn't need human teachers is repeated in Isaiah 11, 9, 54, 13, John 6, 45, Galatians 3, 1, Philippians 3, 15, 1 Thessalonians 4, 9, 1 John 2, 20 and 27. The very fact of giving the Holy Spirit to all who believe, the priesthood of all believers, should lead us to the conclusion that the new covenant of God changes the standards for the religious hierarchy in the covenanted community. That hierarchy will have to abide by different rules than the old covenant hierarchy, Hebrews 8.6. Its function will be different than the function of the old covenant hierarchy, and its goal and purpose will be different than the goal and purpose of the old priesthood. The difference, obviously is in the nature of revelation. And this is the very presupposition at the very beginning of Hebrews that the nature of revelation has changed. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. Hebrews 1, 1 and 2. In this new covenantal context of revelation, clearly, the old systems of revelation by proxy, knowledge by proxy, growth by proxy, maturity by proxy, are all abolished. Men don't need to go to a special place into a special class to learn about God and to grow in knowledge of the Lord. Christ has been revealed clearly to all, including to the foolish Galatians. The concept we talked about above, the right and duty of private judgment, was based on two ideas. The scriptures are plain to all who read them, and the Holy Spirit is given to all who believe. Men don't need to place themselves under the care of other people as immature children. The desired state for man is to be mature, trained to judge between good and evil, and teach and train others to become mature and trained enough to not need teachers and trainers. Making this biblical principle the foundation of our understanding of the role and function of the church should produce in us a radical change in the way we view the institutional church. As it is today in our churches, and as it is exhibited in Jeff Durbin's statement above. The institutional church is viewed as the purpose and end of the Christian life. It is viewed as magisterial, that is, as a ruler over the life of its individual members, hence the requirement for submission. Any institution that views itself as magisterial views itself as the proper guardian of all those under its magisterial rule, whether the institution itself is capable of being a guardian or not. Jeff Durbin's call for Christians to gather in churches under the care of elders is no different than the call of the bramble in Jotham's parable, Judges 9, 7-15, for the trees to take refuge in its shade, trees who have a history of productive life and maturity, coming under the care of elders, who seldom have anything more to show than their ability to jump through bureaucratic hoops and get picked to be on church sessions. Once the church is considered to be the ruler over men's lives, the maturity of the individual Christian becomes irrelevant. His gifts and calling and productivity for the kingdom of God become irrelevant. All that is relevant is whether he serves his new master, the institutional church, even if that master never does anything of any value for the kingdom of God, but is only concerned with its bureaucratic, ceremonial existence. The true church of God, however, based on the nature of the new covenant, on the Holy Spirit abiding in every individual believer, and on the kingdom of God, not on the institutional church, being the focus of the gospel, 
is not concerned with gathering Christians under its shade, but to the contrary, with scattering them outside in the world. In the cosmic battle between the church and the powers of evil, we are not the ones who have walls and gates. We are the ones who are flooding the world and besieging the walls and the gates of the enemy. Our job is not to build small churchdoms. It is to build the kingdom. Only where there are people still untrained to build and fight, the institutional church must be there to offer training and healing. But for the mature who don't need training or healing, the institutional church cannot and should not be a drain on their energy and resources. They should be left alone to continue their fighting and building in the world, in the civilization around the church. Rush Dooney saw the problem and wrote extensively on it in chapter 14 of his Institutes. Quote, the training of such mature men is the function of the church. The purpose of the church should not be to bring men into subjection to the church, but rather to train them into a royal priesthood capable of bringing the world into subjection to Christ the King. The church is the recruiting station, the training field, and the armory for Christ's army of royal priests. It is a functional, not a terminal, institution. The church has by and large paid lip service to the priesthood of all believers because its hierarchy has distrusted the implications of the doctrine and because it has seen the church as an end in itself, not as an instrument. End quote. This is exactly what Jeff Durbin does with his criticism of Facebook prophets. He is not asking whether these men are mature and biblical. He automatically accuses them for not being in subjection to an institutional church. But do they need such subjection? Does the institutional church offer any training or armory to be worth the subjection? Jeff doesn't ask these questions. To him, the institutional church is an end in itself, not a means to training. Rush Dooney continued by explaining the meaning of priesthood and the war of the church against it. Quote, the purpose of man's calling as priest is thus to realize himself as God's vicegerent and to dedicate himself, his areas of dominion, and his calling to God and to the service of God's kingdom. Man's self-realization is possible only when man fulfills his priestly calling. The tendency of institutions, church, state, and school, and of callings, is to absolutize themselves and to play God in the lives of men. Dot, 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 end quote. Of course, in the Bible, there is this apparent contradiction between Jeremiah 31-34, where the new covenant is described as all the people having enough knowledge to not need teachers, and New Testament verses like Ephesians 4.11, where Paul legitimizes ministries of some authority, like apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. Which is it now? Is everyone knowledgeable enough to not need teachers? Or do we need teachers? The answer is in the view of the institutional church presented here. All these ministries are given as a temporary measure for the growth of the body and of the individual believers, not for a permanent subjection of all believers under an institution. The very context in Ephesians 4 confirms the temporary character and need for such ministries, for it immediately adds the clause, until. And he gave some as apostles, and some as prophets, and some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers, for the equipping of the saints for the work of service, to the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. Ephesians 4, 11-13 Very clearly, then, the individual believers are not there for the institutional church, to serve the institutional church. That would be a gross perversion of the role of the individual believers and of the institutional church. The biblical view 
is that the institutional church must be there to serve the individual believers. And if it doesn't have the capability to serve, no one needs it, and we better not have it. To recall the same text we quoted above from the first book of discipline of the Kirk of Scotland, 1560, that it is better to not have a church than to have a church of incapable ministers. Quote, We are not ignorant that the rarity of godly and learned men shall seem to some a just reason why that so straight and sharp examination should not be taken universally. For so it shall appear that the most part of Kirk's shall no, have no minister at all. But let these men understand that the lack of able men shall not excuse us before God, if, by our consent, unable men be placed over the flock of Christ Jesus, as also that, amongst the Gentiles, godly, learned men were also rare as they are now amongst us, when the apostle gave the same rule to try and examine ministers which we now follow. And last, let them understand that it is alike to have no ministers at all, and to have an idol in the place of a true minister, yea, and in some cases it is worse, for those that are utterly destitute of ministers will be diligent to search for them, but those that have a vain shadow do commonly, without further care, content themselves with the same, and so they remain continually deceived, thinking that they have a minister, when in very deed they have none." End quote. Institutional church leadership, thus, is only legitimate when it serves that purpose. When it doesn't serve that purpose, it is illegitimate and deserves no honor whatsoever, no submission whatsoever, but only criticism and judgment through prophetic word from prophets outside or inside the institutional church. The membership of the prophet doesn't have any covenantal significance. What matters is whether the word he speaks agrees with the word of God, and whether the leaders deserve the criticism. Thus, any churchman whose first concern is institutional membership and not the content of the message is by default illegitimate and should not be rendered any honor. Moreover, and this will come as a shocking surprise for many modern Christians in America, church leadership is not necessary for the being and the operation of the church. Yes, you read that well. Church leadership is not necessary for the being and the operation of the church. It is only necessary for the well-being of the church, and that only in specific circumstances were needed. We already saw this concept above in a quote from the First London Baptist Confession, that local churches are not defined by having leadership, but have the power for their well-being to choose elders. The churches, apparently, are legitimate churches even before they have elders and without elders, a concept which the Second London Confession missed, and thus created an unresolvable conundrum. At least one modern Presbyterian denomination has adopted that concept of the leadership as functional, but not necessary, in their constitution. Quote, the Presbyterian form of government seeks to fulfill these scriptural requirements for the glory of Christ, the edification of the church, and the enlargement of that spiritual liberty in which Christ has set us free. Nevertheless, while such scriptural government is necessary for the perfection of church order, it is not essential to the existence of the church visible. End quote. Book of Church Order of the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, 1.3. The early church, as described in Acts, operated without the ecclesiastical office of elders most of the time. In many situations, Paul would create many disciples in a place and wouldn't plant a church with elders. See, for example, Acts 14.21. The requirement that the churches have elders can't be seen anywhere in the New Testament. Sure enough, elders are mentioned, and the requirements for an elder are mentioned, but that is different from a mandatory establishment of elders or local church hierarchy. In all his epistles, Paul speaks to whole congregations without mentioning elders, even where he speaks on issues of church discipline, 
as in his two epistles to the Corinthians. He sent Titus to Crete to appoint elders, but even in this action, two things are obvious. First, Crete had legitimate churches without elders before the arrival of Titus. And second, there was a very special reason for the necessity of ordaining elders, the immorality of the Cretans and the divisions in their churches. Titus 1, 10-16 Logically, even the very instructions Paul gives to Titus for what an elder should be already show that Titus might not be able to ordain elders in every city. There was no guarantee that every city would have at least one believer who fitted the description in Titus 1, 6-9. The modern concept that the universal church should be becoming more and more visible in the growth of its power and jurisdiction is therefore nonsensical in the light of the biblical message. The growth of the institutional church in power and influence as an institution will be a testimony not to the success but to the failure of the new covenant. The promise in the Bible is not that the institutional church will grow, but that the kingdom and the knowledge of God will grow, until there is no need for teachers and therefore no need for an institutional church. The more the institutional church insists on growth and power, the more it declares that it expects its members to remain immature and incompetent. That's where the American church is today. After over 100 years of dominance of the concept of mandatory local church membership, millions of sermons, lectures, and conferences, Bible camps, crusades, etc. have produced nothing of value, and the church continues losing the cultural war. Why? Because the churches do not see themselves as servants for the maturity of the people, but as rulers over flocks that are expected to remain immature throughout their lives, under the care of elders. Sounds like something very godly and righteous. The reality is, it is the killer of maturity, and the birthplace of that concept is hell, not heaven. The visible church, then, defined as per the Reformed confessional standards, must be understood to consist of all those throughout the world that profess the true religion and of their children. All those are all individuals, for the requirement is profession of faith. Some may decide to organize themselves in societies with formal membership. Others may decide to stay out of all kinds of secondary commitments and retain only membership in the universal church through baptism. Membership in such societies can't be considered an automatic proof of membership in the universal church, and non-membership can be considered an automatic exclusion from the church. Some may decide to keep more informal connections to other Christians. Others may decide to work alone in areas where there is a need to work alone. While regularly gathering together is important, it is not such a pressing necessity as to be a priority over certain occupations for the kingdom of Christ, which may require certain levels of solitude. We have a number of faithful Christians in the history of the church who withdrew from commitments to church collectives and still remained faithful to the universal church and rendered an immense service to the body of Christ. In our most recent history, one such example is Arthur Pink, whose story is probably one of the most radical stories of Lone Rangers ever told. For the last 16 years of his life, he never joined any church, nor even a local informal fellowship, and devoted all his time to writing his books. And yet, today, no Baptist ever complains of this deliberate choice to remain alone. And there's hardly a Reformed Baptist home in the U.S. today that doesn't have at least one book by Pink. Examples like Pink are more numerous than most people realize, but what is more important is that Pink's real ministry of writing books was frustrated and almost ruined by his earlier attempts to fit in a local community. The mandatory commitment of such men to a local congregation, investing effort and time in it, whether it may exist sometime down the road or not, is a gigantic waste of spiritual resource. 
the democratic impulse in modern churches, especially in Baptist churches, to test men of strategic calling and ministry by sending them to change diapers in the nursery, makes no sense whatsoever. While it is commendable that all men learn to change diapers, such religion of works doesn't prove anything about the character of a man and really doesn't teach him anything. All it does is deprive the church of valuable time, which could have been used in writing or teaching or training or evangelizing or anything else. Local communities and gatherings, of course, will always exist. Probably, as Charles Hodge said, some of them will require some sort of a covenant or oath to join, mainly because such organizations will have to deal with questions of church property and monetary decisions or public declarations of faith, vision, and mission, and such collective decisions must be limited to sworn members who have made a commitment with all rights and responsibilities to the local group. Such organizations, however, are no more representative of the church universal than any individual who believes in Christ and practices his faith in the world around him. Neither do they have the moral right to exclude from the church and from fellowship other groups or individuals who profess the same faith but do not have the same structure or the same form of collective commitment or oath. Local congregations may have a system of leadership or may not. Local church government is not necessary for the existence of the church, only for its well-being. What is more important is that membership in such groups or congregations must not be based on a requirement to join a church. Every believer has joined the church in the moment of his baptism. Nothing more is required of him in terms of oaths or membership. In the words of A. A. Hodge, quoted above, quote, A church has no right to make a condition of membership anything that Christ has not made a condition of salvation. End quote. Any baptized person who professes the faith and practices it is a legitimate member of any congregation anywhere. If a congregation excludes from fellowship and communion Christians only on the basis that they have not taken a particular oath of commitment to a particular group, such congregation declares itself to be schismatic in relation to the church universal. In reality, such congregation does not confess together with the rest of the church that, quote, we believe one holy Catholic church, end quote. The foundation for unity must be the Word of God, not visible organizations. The goal and purpose must be the growth of the Kingdom of God, Christendom, a Christian civilization which expands way beyond any local church or club or family. Local congregations, if they want more people to join them, must do it through offering superior services of training people to expand the Kingdom. If a local congregation can't offer such services, it is useless, and it's better if it dissolves as many local congregations have dissolved throughout history without any visible damage to the growing kingdom of God. The local congregation can't be an end in itself. It can't be a ruler to whom we must submit. It is not and cannot be magisterial. A local congregation must be ministerial, a servant who serves Christians to achieve purposes greater than itself. If it is useless as a servant, it must be dismissed. If it exists only for the purposes of ceremonial repetition every Sunday, its members should leave it. It's better to not have a local congregation than to be a member of a useless one. Where it serves well and has elders who lead and teach well, it deserves double honor, 1 Timothy 5.17. And yet, even then, formal membership in it must be voluntary and conditional. For an individual, membership in any organization must be subject to a number of reasonable limitations from his personal gifts and calling to the spiritual health and strategic importance of the organization itself. In other words, local church membership, for all it is worth, 
must be left to Christian liberty. Any preacher or teacher who demands such membership as the condition for membership in the universal church is preaching another gospel and, in the words of Charles Hodge, quote, introduces a new method of salvation, end quote. The Biblical Way of Church Discipline The last objection we need to take care of is this. What do we do with church discipline if we don't have mandatory local church membership? In the mind of the modern churchgoer, the only way to do church discipline is through the local church and through membership in the local church. So how do we do it when such membership is not mandatory? We already saw above that historically, there is absolutely no reason to believe that local church membership ever helps with church discipline. To the contrary, we have ample evidence that the rise of this doctrine led only to the destruction of discipline in the churches. And there is a good reason for it. The very idea that church discipline can be maintained through local churches is utterly absurd and makes no sense whatsoever. It's not that we have not applied local church membership correctly, and that's why we don't have the results. It is that the very concept leads to those undesired results, just like government schools. It's not that they have failed. They have succeeded in what they were meant to do. In the same way, it's not that local church membership has failed in its task of maintaining discipline. To the contrary, it has succeeded in its task to destroy it. Three specific and direct examples from my personal experience with local church discipline in America will help us see the utter absurdity of the concept. 1. The Abandonment of Luke 12.48 About ten years ago, a friend of mine invited me to visit his church, a church of good reputation, part of a large Presbyterian denomination, one Sunday morning and participate in the fellowship. My displeasure with the service must have been written all over my face, so after we got out of the church, he asked me to give him my brutally honest opinion about the service. We had the following dialogue. Me. Well, since you want my brutally honest opinion, this preacher you have there is not qualified to be a preacher or even an elder. His sermon, or whatever passed for a sermon, was full of nonsensical clichés and repetitions. It had nothing whatsoever in it that would be beneficial to even a newly converted Christian. My ten-year-old daughter can make up a better sermon. The man can't teach, and having him as an elder violates the clear command of 1 Timothy 3.2 and Titus 1.9. Yeah, you are right, and we all know this. It's just the ruling elders have not been able to find a better teacher yet, and this one has his seminary degree. But you know, people don't come to church for the sermon. Yeah? What do they come to church for? For the fellowship. For the fellowship? I didn't see much fellowship in there. Everyone was sitting quietly and staring at the guys on the podium. You and I can have more fellowship over a glass of bourbon tonight than you can have at 50 of those services. I meant fellowship after church, the potluck, and the rest of it. Oh, if everyone comes not for the sermon but for the fellowship, can you be a member and only come for the potluck after church? No, I have to come for the service. What will happen if you only come for the fellowship? They will probably excommunicate me. Let me see if I get this right. You have elders who can't meet their specific biblical requirement to be able to teach, and you are willing to excuse them for this requirement and obligation, dot, dot, dot. But you have already given them the power to excommunicate you, which is nowhere specifically granted to elders? Huh, I see what you're saying. His is not the only church with that same problem. I can't even count how many times I've heard the phrase, people don't go to church for the sermon, as an excuse for the lack of qualifications of their elders. 
Even more often I have heard the more general excuse. You shouldn't be looking for a perfect church and perfect elders. Of course. But then, their less than perfect elders want for themselves the power to declare discipline and even excommunicate as if they are perfect. That is, we give power to people who, by their own admission, are not qualified to wield it, and we don't even see the problem in it. This is a clear violation of the principle in Luke 12.48. From everyone who has been given much, much will be required. Those who are given the power of discipline and excommunication should be held to a stricter standard and should be always as near as possible to the ideal set forth in 1 Timothy 3, 1-7 and Titus 1, 5-8. When Paul gave these instructions for elders, he didn't tell Timothy and Titus, but if you can't find such people, just appoint somebody. We're not looking for perfect elders anyway. To excuse the elders of a church from being held up to these standards because we can't have perfect elders and at the same time giving them the ultimate power of excommunication is a clear violation of the principles in Scripture concerning power and discipline. 2. The Abandonment of Deuteronomy 19, 18-19, and of Luke 7, 8. In the second example from my experience with church discipline in the modern local churches, I was present at an appeal trial before a presbytery as a higher adjudicatory. The case was the unlawful excommunication of a local church member by his session, for alleged disrespect to authority. The presbytery found the decisions of the session inconsistent with justice, as well as motivated by personal feelings, and promptly reversed the verdict and restored the man to full membership in his church. It seemed like most of the people in the room were happy with the decision, with the exception of some of the elders in question, of course. I had the chance afterward to fellowship with two of the judges in the trial, and I used the chance to ask them a question. So what happens to that session now? Will the presbytery excommunicate them as a session? It turned out they never even considered such an option. But as we continued talking, the two men came to realize that in order for them to be consistent, this would be the only logical thing for them to do. The session had committed injustice. They had testified falsely against the man, and they had judged falsely against him. The session, as a collective of power, had conspired against an innocent man, using its legal power to inflict on him a punishment he did not deserve. Under the principle of Deuteronomy 19, 18, and 19, there could be no neutral reversal of the verdict. Any reversal of that verdict should be by default a verdict on the false accusers, with the same punishment inflicted on them. These men should have been automatically excommunicated from their church and from the denomination, and not allowed to return until there was public repentance, and certainly not allowed to take leadership positions in the church, on no excuse whatsoever. One such grave injustice should disqualify them forever. And yet, even as they agreed with me on the ethics of punishing the false accusers with the same punishment they planned for their victim, the two men were reluctant to pursue their actions to their logical biblical end. The reason? It was not part of their book of discipline. And it couldn't be included either, for under the current ecclesiology, there was no way to include a principle which would subject the sessions to the same sanctions they can mete out to their church members. Which means, the principle of the centurion in Luke 7-8, a man under authority with men under his authority, which Jesus praised so highly as such faith I haven't found in even in Israel, has been abandoned in our churches. 3. The Abandonment of Matthew 18, 15-20 In my third example, I was present at a conversation between pastors of two churches. In that conversation, an issue was brought up about a man excommunicated from one of those two churches who just went down the road and became a member of the other. To my amazement, the conversation was quite friendly and rather nonchalant about the whole matter. 
It was as if I was listening to two employers who just exchanged an employee between them. One just didn't want the guy. The other was okay to have him. As if the excommunication never happened. As if there weren't any accusations against the excommunicated person. As if all excommunication involved was sending a person to another local church. After the meeting, I asked the pastor of the excommunicating church, You don't seem to be taking your own verdict very seriously. I thought you would be consistent with it and either try to convince or excommunicate the other church for taking in a person whom you have delivered to Satan, according to Paul's words in 1 Timothy 1.20. The pastor simply shrugged. Nothing can be done about it. All I can do is rid my church of that man. He explained to me that he had been very meticulous in his application of Matthew 18.15-20. However, when I read the verses to him and asked him if he believed that the verdict of his church was also the verdict of God, He wasn't so sure about it. Maybe, maybe not. Apparently, he also believed in some sort of neutral stance in God, for in his view, even if his verdict was not the verdict of God, that is, even if his church had committed injustice, God wouldn't see it as a big issue. Either way, there was no use of trying to convince the church universal in the validity of his church's verdict. Tell it to the church meant nothing to him beyond tell it to our local church. In other words, Discipline for him was simply banning the person from a particular group, nothing more. These three examples are not isolated. In the context of our modern churches in the U.S., discipline, no matter how much modern ecclesiocrats beat themselves in the chest over that term, means nothing whatsoever. It has become a joke. No one views it seriously anymore, not even the ecclesiocrats themselves. The majority of Christians laugh at their fake discipline, and the ecclesiocrats laugh at it, too, in private, of course. Any excommunicated person just switches churches and can pretty much forget about his old church. Given the rate of change and the longevity of local churches these days, he can be pretty sure his old church will barely exist a few years down the road, and even if it does, it would hardly be the same. Or, if it remains the same, it will hardly be relevant to anything outside it. Inside the churches themselves, discipline is simply a tool of control. It is seldom a tool for doctrinal or ethical purity. Any discipline is only discipline for the ordinary members of the churches. Those who have achieved some leadership status are hardly affected by it, except in some very agrarious cases. And it certainly never applies to leaders in PACs, also known as church sessions, or presbyteries, where any injustice or immorality only meets a mild reproach, if that much at all, and a maximum verdict of reversal of decision. Any excuse that these are a few bad apples but not the whole church, is laughable at best. If anything, there are a few good apples in this basket full of rottenness, and it's just a matter of time until they get rotten as well. Any excuse that the system is good, it's just we haven't applied it well, is just as laughable. It is no different than the claim that communism is a great idea, it was just applied by bad people. The truth is, the current state of the church is not an accident. It follows directly from the currently dominant ecclesiology in the churches that of mandatory local church membership. It is because of mandatory local church membership that we have elders who don't and can't meet the requirements for elders. It is because of mandatory local church membership that we have church sessions who can't be held responsible for the injustices they commit. It is because of mandatory local church membership that excommunication has become a joke and nobody really pays attention to it. The self-ghettoization of the church into little self-absorbed, fragmented communities that seek to suck the energy and the time of their members for trivial tasks and purposes of no lasting significance has led to the situation today. Discipline is not created nor maintained by fragmented ghettos. 
The whole concept that local churches and their elders can maintain church discipline is not only seriously flawed, it is outright absurd. So how is church discipline maintained then, in a biblical fashion, without mandatory local church membership? Here's how. Church discipline is learning, not punishments. The first thing we need to understand about church discipline is that the modern obsession with punishments, and especially with excommunication, is not biblical. While excommunication is mentioned in the Bible, it doesn't constitute such a great part of the life of the church as it is assumed today. We have only three passages dealing with excommunication, Matthew 18, 15-20, 1 Corinthians 5, 9-13, and 2 Thessalonians 3, 6-13. The three passages are certainly not exhaustive in detail. To make them the foundation of the modern doctrine of excommunication as church discipline means that we need to impose on the text our preconceived ideas. When we get to the modern detailed books of church courts and discipline, full of details that can't be found anywhere in the Bible, the deviation of the modern churches from the biblical teaching is clearly evident. The reason for such deviation is that the modern churches have adopted an essentially pagan view of discipline, that discipline is the same as punishment. It is under the secularist natural law worldview that a man is considered disciplined when he is mindful of the punishments his superiors may impose on him. Paganism has no trust in the self-government of individuals. So individuals are always kept in line through being constantly threatened when they go exploring outside the limits set by the dominant institutional hierarchy. Thus, in paganism, there could be no discipline without institutional control. A person is either under the power, under the care, of institutional superiors, or he is anarchist and undisciplined. That a person can be disciplined simply based on his self-control under God is an unacceptable notion in any paganism. Modern churches, having accepted this pagan idea of discipline, boast with having discipline when they have a system of taking their members to court and punishing them. Take any book of church order and read the chapters on discipline. They always have to do with court procedures and punishments. Outside court procedures and punishments, outside institutional power and control, there is no discipline. Thus, only people who are under such control, members, are disciplined. Punishments make discipline. R.J. Rushduni picked on this pagan nature of the modern notion of discipline and called it, quote, not discipline at all, end quote. He pointed to the problem directly, quote, failure to understand this distinction between discipline and punishment is responsible for much of the disorder in the church. In almost every church where discipline is spoken of, in reality, punishment is meant. In the confusion of the two, it is discipline that is usually lost, end quote. And then he gives the correct biblical meaning of discipline. Quote, discipline comes from disciple, which is the Latin word discipulus, in turn derived from disco, learn. To be a disciple and to be under discipline is to be a learner in a learning process. If there is no learning and no growth in learning, there is no discipline. End quote. He continues by pointing out that, quote, an undisciplined church is a church where there is a failure in the proclamation and teaching of Scripture, end quote. Thus, membership in such a church doesn't lead to discipline. It is destructive to true biblical discipline. There is more true discipline in a lone man with his Bible and the Holy Spirit than in a church where the Word of God is not preached or is only preached at a very rudimentary, fundamental level, keeping the hearers fed on milk, Hebrews 6, 1 and 2, and constantly immature. But such are the vast majority of churches in the U.S. today. 
while the author of Hebrews clearly says in Hebrews 5:11 through 6:2 that we should strive to maturity and not remain on the level of the basic doctrines of the faith. These basic doctrines are almost all that is taught in the churches today. There are 20,000 plus sermons on baptism alone, on sermon audio alone, and new ones are coming out weekly. Whole conferences are put up every year on this, these same topics. In fact, this is how one attains to celebrity status in the modern evangelical world. Repeat the same basic doctrines, the same milk of the faith, in fancier and fancier words, over and over again. Where new churches appear, suddenly to right the wrongs or the established ones, the same things are preached. In all respects, the American church today has not grown an inch in spiritual understanding over the original readers of Hebrews. Thus, it is an undisciplined church to start with. Such church cannot practice discipline, and no formal membership in it can produce any kind of discipline. All we have today in the churches is collectivist anarchy and no discipline at all. Thus, true discipline is in true preaching and teaching the Word of God. John 15.3, 17.17, Ephesians 5.26. But such preaching and teaching doesn't need formal church membership, nor can it be restricted to the local congregation and its session. Nor can it be restricted to a handful of churchy and bureaucrats and celebrities who have gathered a congregation around themselves. It comes from a wide variety of sources, including private study and admonitions from prophets who may not be connected to any visible body. A truly disciplined church is focused on learning, not on institutional controls. Excommunication is not a prerogative of elders. This may come as a deep surprise to many Christians today because of the mass of inherited teachings in the churches. But whatever teachings we may have inherited, they all must be judged by Scripture. And when we go to the Scripture, we don't find a single verse that connects excommunication to elders. In the places where the prerogatives of elders are listed, excommunication is not listed. To start with, the main justification for excommunication in Matthew 18, 15-20 doesn't mention elders and sessions in church leadership. The word used there is the church. And in verse 20, Jesus declares his presence in his church, even where there are only two or three believers gathered together. We will see below what this means. In Acts 6.4, the apostles, acting as elders of the church in Jerusalem, which couldn't have been a local church, given that it had thousands of believers at that time, described their duties as prayer and the ministry of the word. Excommunication is not mentioned. The focus is on teaching in agreement with what was said above, that true discipline is in learning, not in punishments. The section in the Bible, however, which contains the lengthiest and most detailed exposition of the duties and prerogatives of elders, are Paul's two epistles to Timothy and his epistle to Titus. It is common today, when qualifications and duties of eldership are mentioned, to focus only on a few verses in these epistles, where the minimum requirements are listed, 1 Timothy 3, 1-7, and Titus 1, 5-8. What is most of the time missed is that Timothy and Titus were themselves elders, and these three epistles, in their entirety, are instructions to elders. In giving instructions to Timothy and Titus, Paul, in fact, gave instructions to all the elders and bishops of what their obligations and prerogatives are. And guess what? In all these 13 chapters of detailed instructions to these two elders, Paul did not mention excommunication once. Keep in mind, Timothy and Titus were not simply elders. They were rather super-elders, bishops. For they were charged with the task of ordaining elders. Not only were they super-elders, they had the claim to true authority, 
both were appointed and ordained by Paul, and Timothy also had the authority of special prophecies behind him, 1 Timothy 1.18 and 4.14. If any elder ever in history could claim that his binding and loosing were God's binding and loosing, it would be these two men. And yet, in all his instructions, Paul mentioned nothing of excommunication. And these men were sent to their fields to bring discipline to the churches under their supervision, 1 Timothy 1.3, Titus 1.5. That was the main purpose of their sending. Under the dominant ecclesiology in the modern churches, Paul would have given them a detailed list of judicial procedures for punishments and excommunication. Just look at the book of discipline of any modern denomination or listen to any sermon on church discipline. But there's nothing of the sort in Paul's epistles, not even a mention of it. But what is mentioned over and over again is instruction. In accordance with what we saw above, Paul saw instructions as the only instrument of discipline given to these super-elders, Timothy and Titus. The verses are too many to quote, so I will just give a list of them. 1 Timothy 1, 5, 2, 6, 3, 2, 4, 6, 11, 13, and 16. 5, 1, 7, 17. 6, 2, 17. 2 Timothy 2, 2, 14 through 15. 24 through 26. 4, 1 through 2. Titus 1, 9, 2, 1, and 15. 3, 1, and 14. Nothing about excommunication. Everything about teaching all in the context of church discipline. Thus, there is absolutely no biblical foundation for the modern concept of excommunication as the prerogative of elders. Such concept is the fruit of extra-biblical traditions, not of careful exegesis of the Bible. The duty of the elders is to teach, not to punish. Excommunication is a prerogative of the church. Because the modern view of discipline is so much focused on punishments and so much revolves around local church hierarchy, one very clear biblical truth is always missing from modern teachings on discipline. Excommunication is left in the hands of the church in general, which means the individual believers, not their elders. In every single place in the New Testament where excommunication is mentioned, the agency responsible for making the decision and enforcing it is not the church leadership, but the mass of individual believers starting with that most favorite passage of all advocates of excommunication with discipline, Matthew 18, 15-20. Here's what the verse has to say as the final stage of punishment. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, verse 17. But what is the church? Is it the elite of church leaders? Not according to the Reformed Confessions. Quote, the visible church, which is also Catholic or universal under the gospel, not confined to one nation, as before under the law, consists of all those throughout the world that profess the true religion and of their children. End quote. It is tempting, of course, in the modern context to assume that the church must be an official leadership body which issues verdicts and enforces them for the church. But there's no support for such conclusion in the Bible. Besides Matthew 18, we have 1 Corinthians 5, 9-13. In these verses, however, Paul speaks to the gathering of believers, not to their elders or their church session. We need to remember the words of Charles Hodge we quoted above. Quote, the scriptures are everywhere addressed to the people, and not to the officers of the church either exclusively or specially. The prophets were sent to the people and constantly said, Hear, O Israel, hearken, O ye people. Thus, also the discourses of Christ were addressed to the people, and the people heard him gladly. All the epistles of the New Testament are addressed to the congregation. 
to the called of Jesus Christ, to the beloved of God, to those called to be saints, to the sanctified in Christ Jesus, to all who call on the name of Jesus Christ our Lord, to the saints which are in Ephesus, and to the faithful in Jesus Christ, or to the saints and faithful brethren which are in Colossae. And so in every instance, it is the people who are addressed. To them are directed these profound discussions of Christian doctrine, and these comprehensive expositions of Christian duty. They are everywhere assumed to be competent to understand what is written, and are everywhere required to believe and obey what thus came from the inspired messengers of Christ. End quote. And it's not that the Corinthian church was a very ordered and organized church. To the contrary, Paul's admonitions in chapter 12 and 14 clearly show that there was a certain level of disorder which he found necessary to correct. And yet, even in those chapters, Paul relies on his words and on the self-control of his readers. He mentions nothing of elders nor of church officers who should step in and institute order and discipline. Same applies to the excommunication case in chapter 5. Paul speaks to every one of those individual believers as the church. He expects every one of them to take his words and apply them. Paul doesn't issue the verdict, neither does he take upon himself the administration of that verdict. He only instructs. He expects his readers to judge and to decide for themselves who is it that claims to be a brother but is not. Paul repeats the same admonition to another church, that in Thessalonica, in 2 Thessalonians 3.6. Now we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from every brother who leads an unruly life and not according to the tradition which he received from us. Again, elders are not mentioned anywhere in that epistle. The command is to the ordinary believers in the church. They are supposed to exercise judgment, and they are supposed to execute that judgment. Excommunication by professional leaders is not mentioned. We see an image of this communal excommunication in the requirement for communal execution for some crimes in the law of God. For example, Leviticus 24.14 and Deuteronomy 21.21. The elders of the city or of the community were supposed to act as judges and declare the verdict, but there was no professional class of executors. It was left to the men of the community to stone the offender. This is presented today as some sort of primitive cruelty. But what most commentators fail to see, that in this requirement of execution by the community, rather by a government-hired hangman, there is a check and balance on judicial arbitrariness and injustice. If the judge was too harsh or corrupt, and if the community believed that the verdict was not just, the verdict would have remained on the books, but there would be no execution. Thus, there would be an ultimate check on the judge's actions, and that would be what would be called today nullification by community restraint. Similarly, in the New Testament church, the elders could be judges and still could issue verdicts concerning the walk and the doctrines of some men. An example would be Paul in 1 Timothy 1.20, delivering to Satan certain men for their conduct and teachings. In the final account, however, the real action on excommunication was reserved not for the elders themselves, of which we have not, not a single verse, but was left to the self-government and private judgment of the individual believers as the church. Thus, excommunication was not a ceremonial nor an administrative action. It was a responsibility of the community, irrespective of the decisions of the elders. Rushduni saw this error in the modern church and wrote about it. Quote, Fifth, in terms of these ministerial powers, we have great authority of binding and loosing. If two or three gather together in Christ's name either as a church court or as simple believers, agree on something in faithfulness to Scripture, we can bind and loose men. Now normally, this is a function of church authorities. End quote. 
This concept of excommunication as a responsibility of the community also gives the, the solution to the question I asked above. Who excommunicates the excommunicators? Under the modern system, as we saw, a local church session can't be excommunicated if it commits injustice. Under the biblical concept of excommunication, a session can be excommunicated by the community over which it presides. Despite of and contrary to the decisions of the session, without the need of any other authority by the private judgment and agreement of the ordinary members. And this is actually happening today in the exodus of so many Christians from the visible institutional churches. It is nothing less than a massive excommunication of the modern church leaders by Christians who want to remain faithful to the word and are tired of being fed the same basic milk. Thus, local church membership is not only not needed for excommunication, but it is in fact harmful to the process of real biblical excommunication because it binds the conscience of individual believers where God has not imposed any burdens. In addition, we may also point to the fact that where the word is preached faithfully, the Bible expects the heretics, the teachers of false doctrines, to leave on their own accord without the need for formal church discipline. In his first epistle, John speaks of the Antichrists and their separation from the church. Quote, Children, it is the last hour, and just as you heard that Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have appeared. From this we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not really of us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us, but they went out, so that it would be shown that they all are not of us. But you have an anointing from the Holy One, and you all know, I have not written to you because you do not know the truth, but because you do know it and because no lie is of the truth. End quote. 1 John 2, 18-21 Notice that, first, these false teachers were not kicked out. They went out on their own accord. And second, their going out is constrained to the anointing and knowledge of those who remained in the church. As Rush Juni said concerning discipline in the church, quote, There is a supernatural teaching or disciplining power inherent in the word of the supernatural God, which is lacking in the words and actions of men. End quote. Conclusion. As I said in the beginning of this article, when Jeff Durbin made his statement against his opponents, the Facebook prophets, he did it not on the basis of a solid understanding of the Bible or of Reformed theology. All he did is follow a recent tradition popular in the modern ministry industrial complex, a tradition which seeks to chain individual Christians to obey and submit to men who have no other credit except having achieved the status of celebrities. The same ministry industrial complex which, for the last 100 years, have made the church in America passive, powerless, and retreating on all the fronts of the cultural war. When we, however, rise above the level of the propaganda of this ministry industrial complex and actually study the Bible, the historic church, and reform theology on the issue of local church membership, we are forced to come to the following conclusions which clearly show that Jeff is completely wrong and that he doesn't know what he is talking about. First, Mandatory local church membership can't be found as a principle in the Bible. A Christian becomes a member of the church in baptism. No other vow or covenant or membership is required of him. A member of the church is equally a member of all the local congregations. The biblical principle is that a man's commitments follow his gifts and purpose before God, not any requirement to join a visible body. A member of a local body and a lone believer are equally legitimate members of the church. Second, Mandatory local church membership has never existed as a concept in the church, nor in Reformed theology, and has only gotten to dominate the Reformed churches in the last one century. During the centuries, it has always been characteristic to non-Orthodox cults, never to the Trinitarian churches. 
III. It was introduced as a confessional standard among Reformed Baptists very late in their history, and that as a concession to political pressure, not based on any specific biblical example or command. Laying such unbiblical burden on the consciences of their followers, however, the authors of the Second London Baptist Confession created a contradiction that has created problems for their churches ever since. Fourth, such fragmentation of the church was the product of a pessimistic ideology which sees the church as a permanent ghetto in a world which is a permanent den of evil, when the church is optimistic about the kingdom of God and its expansion into a Christian civilization. Such focus on the local congregations is a waste of resources. Fifth, contrary to the claims of the modern ministry-industrial complex, mandatory local church membership cannot be an effective tool for church discipline. To the contrary, it only encourages an undisciplined church because it elevates the power of the local sessions to the status of lack of accountability for the very leaders who are supposed to enforce the discipline. The history of the last one century, when the concept of mandatory local church membership became dominant, is an abundant evidence that the concept not only didn't work, but also can't work for the purposes it was supposedly introduced. Sixth, the true church is universal, and its bond of unity is the Word of God, not some visible institutional organization, global or local. It may include local congregations. It also includes lone individuals who, for one reason or another, have chosen to remain separate from visible organizations. Membership in a visible body can't be taken to be membership in the church, and non-membership in a visible body doesn't automatically exclude a person from the church. Making membership in a local visible body a standard for all believers is, according to Reformed theology, a Pelagian heresy and false worship. Any church teacher who teaches such requirement is a false teacher, and as such must be ignored and abandoned by his listeners. The standard for membership in a visible body or gathering with other Christians is left to Christian liberty. No burden can be laid on the conscience of the believer, and when there is some form of membership, the right and duty of private judgment must always trump any vow or oath or covenant to a visible body. The local church is not the church, and it is not a fundamental part of the life of a Christian. And seventh, church discipline is teaching and training, not punishments. When there is no teaching or training, or where the people have been fed only the fundamental milk of the faith, there is no discipline. Excommunication is a very minuscule part of discipline, and it is not given as a prerogative to elders. It is a responsibility and a privilege of the whole church of all the individuals in it, and subject to it must be first and foremost the very teachers and leaders in the church. The specific conclusion for the Facebook prophets is this. Your duty and obligation before God is to continue harassing the churchian leaders of our day, using all the means available. Do not be intimidated by Jeff Durbin's complaints. He doesn't know what he is talking about. Without you, all these ecclesiocrats won't ever experience any real church discipline. For in the small churchdoms they have built for themselves, there is no way for them to be truly disciplined. You are their only check and balance. Only make sure your criticism and correction are in accordance with the biblical message, and your theology is sound and solid. As long as your opponents are complaining only about your local church membership, you are safe, and they are in opposition to God, for he never asks his prophets who their elders are. So first, make sure you are in agreement with the word of God, and then, continue doing what you are doing. The specific conclusion for Jeff Durbin can be given in the words of the great Dutch Reformed theologian, Herman Bavink. Quote, It is not unbelievers primarily, but the devout, who have always experienced this power of the hierarchy as a galling bond to their consciences. Throughout the centuries, there has not only been scientific, societal, and political resistance, but also deeply religious and moral opposition to the hierarchical power of the church. 
and simply will not do to explain this opposition in terms of unbelief and disobedience, and intentionally to misconstrue the religious motives underlying the opposition of various sects and movements. No one has been bold enough to damn all these sects because they were moved to resist the Church and its tradition. Even Rome shrinks from this conclusion. The extra Ecclesium Nola Salus, no salvation outside the Church, is a confession that is too harsh for even the most robust believer. Accordingly, the law we see at work in every area of life is operative also in religion and morality. On the one hand, there is a revolutionary spirit that seeks to level all that has taken shape historically in order to start rebuilding things from the ground up. There is, however, also a false conservatism that takes pleasure in leaving the existing situation untouched simply because it exists, and, in accordance with Calvin's familiar saying, not to attempt to change a well-positioned evil, malum bene, positum non movere. At the proper time, everywhere and in every sphere of life, a certain radicalism is needed to restore balance, to make further development possible, and not let the stream of ongoing life bog down. In art and science, state and society, similarly in religion and morality, there gradually develops a mindless routine that oppresses and does violence to the rights of personality, genius, invention, inspiration, freedom, and conscience. But in due time there always arises a man or woman who cannot bear that pressure, casts off the yoke of bondage, and again takes up the cause of human freedom and that of Christian liberty. These are turning points in history. Thus, Christ himself rose up against the tradition of the elders and returned to the law and the prophets. Thus, one day the Reformation had the courage, not in the interest of some scientific, social, or political goal, but in the name of Christian humanity, to protest against Rome's hierarchy. End quote. This quote should be enough, but if Jeff needs a biblical warning, here it is. So in the present case I say to you, stay away from these men and let them alone, for if this plan or actions is of men, it will be overthrown. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them, or else you may even be found fighting against God. Acts 5, 38 and 39. And in general, Jeff, keep this in mind. Every time you are defending an institutional system against prophets, you are at risk before God, especially if it's like the one you are defending. You better get out of it before it's too late. This concludes the audio article and in one holy local church, The Ghettoization of Protestantism, Part 3, by Bojidar Marinov, narrated by Jason Sanchez. Please visit christendomrestored.com to read all three parts, and visit reconstructionistradio.com to download your favorite audiobooks.